Ukraine has been pushing its allies to send its state-of-the-art Western tanks to use against Russians. Two countries considered to have the best tanks in the world, the U.S. and Germany, have denied the request until today. Why they acquiesced coming up on this Wednesday, January 25th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, gun violence is rampant in America. How is it affecting our mental health as a society? Well, here are we should be taking care of ourselves amid countless stories of mass shootings. And a viral stew. With COVID, RSV, and the flu and other bugs circulating, the last few months have been a cycle for many families with young kids. You can have a viral infection every month. And so they're going to catch their next virus before they even stop coughing from the last one. While miserable, it's also normal in the grand scheme. We'll hear about it. It's now 401 News Headlines are next. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. is sending 31 Abrams tanks to Ukraine. NPR's Asma Khalid reports President Biden made the announcement this afternoon as Russia's invasion of Ukraine approaches its first anniversary. This decision to send Abrams tanks is a policy reversal. Officials had previously suggested the tanks would be too complex to maintain. But this announcement comes in consultation with European allies, and specifically in conjunction with Germany's decision to send tanks of its own. The president insists the tanks are meant to help Ukrainians hold on to their territory. That's what this is about, helping Ukraine defend and protect Ukrainian land. It is not an offensive threat to Russia. Biden also reiterated the United States' support for Ukraine and for freedom broadly. We're not going to allow one nation to steal a neighbor's territory by force. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. The man accused of killing seven people at two agricultural facilities in Half Moon Bay on Monday is expected to be arraigned this hour on charges that are expected to include murder and attempted murder for mass shootings in the Northern California community. The carnage was part of a series of gun violence in the state since Saturday when another gunman took 11 lives during Lunar New Year celebrations in Monterey Park before he took his own life. Marisa Lagos with member station KQED describes the emotional toll and anger expressed by many gun control advocates, including Governor Gavin Newsom, who visited Half Moon Bay yesterday. Here in California, which is a deeply blue state where we have some of the strictest gun control laws in the nation, in particular the the Bay Area, Half Moon Bay, I actually think his anger um, and that of many other Democratic officials who spoke yesterday was well received. I mean, I think there is a lot of anger. We've seen a lot of the state's laws being hollowed out by court decisions in recent years. KQED's Marisa Lagos reporting. The new bivalent COVID-19 vaccines that target Omicron appear to protect people against the latest Omicron subvariants. That's according to new research released today by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. More from NPR's Rob Stein. The CDC says the new research provides the first estimate of how well the updated boosters protect people against the latest subvariants, known as XBB. The CDC says a study involving more than 13,000 people found the boosters appear to protect people about as well against the XBB subvariants as against earlier strains. Food and Drug Administration advisors Thursday will debate whether to continue to update the vaccines to try to match the latest variants. Some experts argue it would be better to develop next-generation vaccines and get more of the unvaccinated vaccinated. Rob Stein, NPR News. 
U.S. stocks end the day mixed. The Dow was up nine points, settling at 33,743. The Nasdaq was down 20 points. S&P was down slightly. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will give her first State of the City address tonight. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the in-person event will be held at the new MGM Music Hall in Fenway. Wu did not give a State of the City speech last January. She was weeks into the job and COVID was surging. Tonight, Wu was expected to recap the accomplishments of her first full year in office and outline future policy proposals like rent control. Wu told WBUR's Radio Boston she hopes the concert venue will help set a forward-looking tone. We chose a venue that is newer and, you know, new energy in the city, love the flexibility, and, and now this great asset for the arts community as well. Um, It's slightly larger, so we can accommodate more of our community members there as well. Former Mayor Marty Walsh used to hold his State of the City addresses in Symphony Hall. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. WBUR will have special coverage of the speech tonight on air and on the WBUR app. The mayor is expected to speak at 7.30. Primary health care in Massachusetts is taking a hit in the pandemic. That's according to the first ever dashboard from the State Center for Health Information and Analysis. It reports a drop in the portion of residents who get preventive and cancer screenings. The number of primary care physicians in the state who have left the field increased, and insurance companies are spending a smaller portion on primary health care spending than before the pandemic. Students at Massachusetts public colleges and universities may receive more financial aid in the future. The State Board of Higher Ed is looking at two proposals that would provide more aid dollars to low- and moderate-income students. The board's chair said today he endorses both proposals and said they could be paid for with revenue from the state's new millionaire's tax. Combined, the measures would cost the state $335 million. The next winter storm is nearly here. It's a quick one. Snow has arrived in western and central Mass. It is pushing eastward. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noy says it will start as snow, but won't end that way. Areas of snow this evening make the transition to rain from south to north, so it's minor accumulation before that happens. According to an inch expected in the city, an inch or two north and west of Boston to as much as three inches outside of 495, scatter coatings on the south shore of the canal. But it gets washed away as the rain falls heavily tonight with localized flooding possible. Wind gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour along the coast from the south shore to the Cape will result in isolated damage. Rain tapers to showers by 7 a.m. tomorrow, high of 50. Next chance of snow and rain comes later Sunday. 37 degrees now in the Boston area under cloudy skies. It's 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For months, Ukraine has been demanding state-of-the-art Western tanks, and for months, they have been denied. Today, that changed. The U.S. and Germany promised to send these tanks. Well, these countries, well, these two countries are considered to have the best tanks in the world. So let's hear from both capitals. We are joined from Berlin by NPR's Rob Schmitz. Hey, Rob. Hey there. And from Washington by NPR's Greg Myrie. Hiya, Greg. Hi, Mary Louise. Hi, Greg. You start. The U.S. had been adamant that it would not be sending these Abrams tanks. Today, it changed tack. 
Do we know why? Well, I think there's both a military reason and a political reason. Um, On the military front, the U.S. has acknowledged that Ukraine needs tanks, but it kept saying the Abrams, which is the main U.S. tank, just wasn't a good fit. It's considered the world's best, but also the most sophisticated. It needs lots of training and maintenance. It also uses jet fuel, uh, not the usual diesel fuel that other tanks use. So it wasn't seen as a great short-term option, which leads us to the political reason. Germany also has these excellent tanks that could get to Ukraine more quickly, but Germany had been reluctant to get out in front on, on sending tanks. So President Biden's announcement gave Germany some political cover, and, and Biden went out of his way to praise the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz. Do we know how long it's going to take to get these tanks over there? No, we don't. But a senior administration official said it would be months, not weeks. We're talking about 31 of the Abrams tanks. That's one Ukrainian tank battalion. Uh, The U.S. will have to train the Ukrainians, who've proven to be very fast learners on other weapon systems. But these are tanks that are, are not already in service. The U.S. is going to go through the procurement process, which can be a military synonym for do everything in slow motion. (laughs) Now, one senior U.S. official tried to put the best face on this. He said the German tanks represent a near-term commitment. The U.S. tanks represent a long-term commitment. And Rob Schmitz, jump in here, because as Greg nodded to, Germany has also been reluctant to send tanks. What exactly did they announce today, and did they explain why they appear to have changed their minds? He didn't go into specifics, but he spoke today at the Bundestag, which is Germany's parliament, as part of his regular question and answer session. And he said that he decided to do this after what he called intensive consultations with Germany's allies and partners, including the United States. And he hinted that waiting to take this action until the U.S. was ready to also send tanks was an important necessity. Germany did not want to be alone in sending tanks to Ukraine. Many Germans are scared that doing that would have risked pulling Germany into a broader conflict. And here's some tape of Schultz addressing those fears. And Mary Louise, he's saying here that many German citizens are worried about sending Leopard 2 battle tanks to Ukraine given the power of these weapons, and that he would like to say to his citizens, trust me and trust the federal government. He said, because Germany acted in cooperation with its international partners, it has made sure this support is possible without risking that Germany would be pulled directly into this conflict. He also made it clear that Germany would not enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine and that it wouldn't send ground troops in any situation. So these tanks appear to be as far as Olaf Scholz is willing to go. I want to step back for a minute, and I'll throw this one to you, Greg. Why are tanks so critical for Ukraine right now? Well, Ukraine has been outgunned by Russia on almost every front in this war, and tanks are a powerful example of that. Russia has more tanks. The Ukrainians have had to rely on these aging Soviet-era tanks. Now, Ukraine is widely expected to carry out offensives pretty soon, and that's where tanks do become quite critical, when an army is trying to move forward on the ground. We should stress that a lot of military analysts say that tanks are just one component, though a key one, in what the U.S. calls combined arms. And they say the Ukrainians need many things, effective ground troops, light armored vehicles, artillery, air power, and they very much need tanks. 
one more question from the European perspective, because, Rob, I am wondering if this might open the floodgates for others. It's not just Germany among European countries that has tanks, not just Germany that has Leopard tanks. That's right. German weapons manufacturers export different models of Leopard tanks all throughout Europe. And so we've got dozens upon dozens of these in countries all over Europe. And today also Germany announced that their partner countries who have these tanks can also send those tanks to Ukraine if they want to. So Poland obviously has been asking to do this for a while, as have many other European countries. So in the following weeks, we'll likely see the first deliveries of what could be dozens of uh, some of the most state-of-the-art tanks being handed over to Ukraine's military. And Mary Lou, let me just pick up on what Rob was saying. That we've seen this very intense focus on tanks recently. In some ways, it's overshadowed some other key developments. Ukraine has received more pledges, more heavy weapons in the past month than at any time since the war began. The U.S. and others have promised Patriots and other air defense systems to guard against Russian missiles. We've seen hundreds of armored vehicles that have been pledged, and now the tanks. Now, all of this sends a clear signal that the U.S. and NATO remain united, which many had questioned uh, that that would happen, and that they're stepping up support for Ukraine. In contrast, we've been hearing that Russia is turning to Iran and North Korea for weapons that are far less than cutting edge. Rob, just one more to you before I let you go. I keep thinking about this headline. German tanks set to roll across Europe towards a war. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's enough for any student of the wars of the past century to send just the tiniest chill down your spine. How is the conversation unfolding where you are in Berlin? Yeah, that's right. And I think it's worth remembering that Germany's history as a military aggressor in two world wars makes a decision like this to send war machines back into battle a really difficult and sensitive one for Germans. And I think Germany's more recent history of decades worth of Soviet rule and being in the middle of the Cold War also plays into this specific conflict. There's a residual pacifist sentiment from the Cold War here in Germany. And there's also a shared history between Germany and Russia from that era. And the complexities of that have slowly percolated for many Germans as this war has dragged on. We, you know, we've seen a shift in recent weeks of German public opinion towards Ukraine and against Russia. And I think it's a slowly evolving transition that we're witnessing here in Germany. Fascinating. NPR's Rob Schmitz and Greg Myrie reporting today from Berlin and Washington. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor Louise. Gun violence has an impact on mental health, and that's true far beyond the communities where shooting happens. This year, the U.S. has already had more than 30 mass shootings, including the two in California over the last week. Erica Felix teaches psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. How does this relentless toll of mass shootings affect people who might not be directly in the path of the gunfire or even anywhere near it? Yeah, so I think that you can liken these things to like a ripple in a pond where it reverberates out beyond the direct impact, you can see the concentric circles rippling out from that. If we use your analogy of the ripples, let's go closer to where that drop goes into the water. Some communities have much more gun violence than others, and the majority of gun violence is not mass shootings. Yeah. What impact does living in that community have on people, even if their loved ones, friends, or relatives are not directly in the path of the gunfire? 
Well, they are under constant stress. For people who have to contend with it every day as they go to work or walk to school, they have elevated levels of hypervigilance, and that erodes our mental health and our physical health. We're talking about mental health consequences broadly. Can you speak specifically about what the actual impact is on people? Yeah, so whether we witness it on the news or live in the community or we were there on site, you can have a, a significant elevation in emotions of anxiety, worry, problems with sleeping. All of that is completely understandable. And for Even if you're not in the community, even if you don't know the people affected. Yes. When we're watching the news, we feel the distress. We have this empathy component of ourselves as human beings. But for some people, especially who experience the most losses, there is an increased potential for post-traumatic stress disorder or depression, complications in the understandable grief process if you lost a loved one in a violent way. Obviously, the ideal solution would be to end gun violence. But what specific steps can you suggest people take to reduce some of these negative psychological consequences? Yes. In the immediate aftermath, one of the important things is to get social support. We had a mass murder tragedy affect our community. In Santa Barbara. In Santa Barbara in 2014. So what people found most helpful was the activities where they came together as a community. It could even just be a potluck and just be around other people who are experiencing similar things. Um, That's so interesting to me that a vigil, for example, is not just a show of solidarity or a statement of community. It's actually healing. It is. And actually, when I surveyed our students at UCSB following the mass murder tragedy, that was one of the things they found most helpful, and it was the most widely attended. All of that stuff students rated as really helpful in their coping in the immediate aftermath. Hmm. As members of the media report on these shootings week after week, are there ways you wish news organizations would approach these stories differently that might reduce the harm? I appreciate the shift that I've seen in news media where there's focus on the community and survivors and there's limited coverage on the perpetrator. I think that's been a great shift. I've also really appreciated when the media has gone back to communities that experienced this years ago and just talked about how they're coping in the long-term aftermath, I think is helpful as more and more people contend with this. That's Erica Felix, professor of clinical psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, what Brazil's controversial ex-president is doing now in Florida. Also, Justin Bieber sells the rights to his entire catalog of music. Those stories still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com.
Wall Street stocks closed pretty close to where they opened. The Dow gained a small fraction. It was up 10 points and closed at 33,744. The S&P dipped a tiny fraction to close at 40.16. The Nasdaq lost nearly two-tenths of a percent to end the day at 11,313. The former Vanderbilt estate in Stockbridge and Lenox has been sold for $8 million. The Boston Business Journal reports the new owner is a real estate developer who's likely to turn the 89-acre property into a luxury resort. A sale closed last month. Business news comes up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 4.19. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, with customer service specialists available daily to help with your health and wellness questions in Cambridge and Brighton and at cambridgenaturals.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars. Should have light rain and snow into the evening hours, turning to just plain rain after 10 tonight. Temperatures should be on the march, making it to nearly 50 in the middle of the night. Some strong winds, too. Tomorrow morning should bring more rain, cloudy skies lasting the day. Temperatures should fall from about 50 to 39 by this time tomorrow. And then Friday should be sunny at last, with highs about 38. 37 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. What do these musicians have in common? Bob Dylan, Calvin Harris, Stevie Nicks. They're just three of the growing crowd of artists who've sold the rights to their own music. Justin Bieber is the latest to join the ranks. He's selling his entire catalog for more than $200 million. Kristen Robinson is a music publishing reporter from Billboard. Welcome. Thanks for having me. To start with Bieber's sale specifically, what can you tell us about the company that bought his catalog for $200 million? Yes. So Hypnosis Songs Capital is who bought Justin Bieber's catalog. This is one of the major players in the music catalog acquisition market, which has been really hot in the last few years. A ton of artists, many of which you mentioned in your intro, are deciding to sell their catalogs so that they can get an upfront payment. And Hypnosis is one of those companies that is buying up a lot of them. Um, you know, Shakira, Leonard Cohen, all these artists that don't seem to have too much in common, but they do have valuable catalogs. I, I get that purchasing a popular artist's catalog allows companies to get royalties, cut brand deals. But ultimately, is it worth hundreds of millions of dollars? When you look at the sums that are being shelled out, they're just huge. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of money, um, and artists' catalog deals are not an exact science. Uh, th there are people who work in catalog valuations who try to determine exactly how much each catalog should be bought and sold for, um, but it, it's, it's a very difficult number to come to, and these numbers have been climbing a lot higher in recent years. There definitely are some critics who might say, the catalog market has gotten way too hot and there are too many people that are trying to buy, which has pushed these prices to astronomical levels that they've never reached before. These are definitely risks that these companies are taking, but I think that 
you know, someone like Hypnosis is willing to take that bet, even on a younger artist like Justin Bieber. Um, so it's it's going to be very telling in the next few decades whether or not these companies will ever be able to make the money back that they spent on these catalogs. As you said, the artists who are selling their catalogs are so different from one another, and they have dramatically increased in the last few years. Why do so many musicians suddenly think this is a good idea? Well, for musicians, there's quite a few reasons. I think that COVID-19 should not be understated. A lot of these artists were pulled off the road or they had tours planned that were really going to be the things that help them pay their mortgages and, you know, all that stuff over the last few years that were all canceled. A lot, a lot of revenue streams offered to artists were eliminated. David Crosby, who, you know, passed away sadly last week, even tweeted about this and said that he didn't really want to sell his catalog, but he felt that he needed to because a lot of his opportunities to make money had been taken away from him. That being said, a lot of artists that are especially reaching their older years sometimes would just rather sell and get that money in an upfront payment than to maybe, you know, if they, if they don't feel like they're going to live for more than a, a couple more decades, like leaving this catalog to your family members is a really challenging thing to look after. It's way easier to divvy up millions and millions of dollars than it is to divvy up publishing rights. Yes, exactly. It's quite a burden on your family, especially if they don't have much knowledge of the music business, Mm. to have them try to manage a giant estate like that. So it is a lot simpler to just be like, let's let's get this money now while, you know, interest rates are low in the last few years. Like, let's capitalize on the fact that there's high demand in the market, try to cash out right now, and then, you know, live off that for the rest of your life and also pass that down to your offspring. That's Kristen Robinson, a music publishing reporter for Billboard. Thanks a lot. Thank you. In Florida, the fight over an AP course on African-American history is intensifying. The college board says it will soon release a revised version of the course for advanced placement high school students. That announcement comes less than a week after officials in Florida said they would ban its use in the state because they believe it carries a political agenda. NPR's Greg Allen reports that stance has now sparked a backlash by black leaders and a lawsuit. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is no stranger to controversy. A likely 2024 presidential candidate, he's built a national profile in the Republican Party by taking a stand against policies he calls woke. His targets have ranged from mask and COVID vaccine mandates to discussions of sexual orientation and gender identity in the schools. But his administration's decision to ban a new AP course of African-American studies has drawn attention around the country. That was in Philadelphia yesterday, outside a private club where DeSantis received an award. Protesters yelled shame at club members as they entered. Back in his home state, there was a similar scene today inside Florida's Capitol building. Black history is American history. Black history. Civil rights lawyer Benjamin Crump joined a group of African-American lawmakers to say they would do more than protest the administration's ban of the African-American studies course. They plan to file a lawsuit challenging it on behalf of three high school students. Crump said there's a clear precedent, quoting from a federal judge's recent decision that invalidated portions of Florida's anti-woke legislation. It is not for the state of Florida to declare which viewpoints will be deemed orthodox and which will be forbidden 
from its university classrooms. DeSantis and other members of his administration say the criticism of the ban is unfair. The state rejected the course, they say, because, quote, it lacks educational values and historical accuracy. This week, DeSantis defended the decision to ban the course, saying it amounted to indoctrination. This course on black history, what are one of, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory. Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. Florida's education commissioner has said if the college board revises its course, he'll consider allowing it to be used in state schools. The college board says revisions are being made to a pilot version of the course, and a new framework will be released next week. A Florida Department of Education spokesperson says the department expects the changes will remove references to critical race theory, black queer studies, and other topics it's identified as objectionable. The college board says the revisions are based on feedback from high schools and colleges, but there's no word yet on what they'll entail. Florida's House Democratic leader, Fentress Driscoll, says the changes may be enough to satisfy Florida's objections and allow DeSantis to claim a win. But at what cost? And are we really okay with Ron DeSantis deciding what's acceptable for America's students across the country about black history? As he looks to higher office, DeSantis says he's committed to making sure it remains what he calls the free state of Florida. But the Democratic leader in Florida's Senate, Lauren Book, says the governor does so by targeting groups and ideas. This freedom fallacy that exists in our state is getting really, really tired. We can't say that we're a free state when the executor is constantly going after this population or that. This week, DeSantis rolled out new plans to reshape education in the nation's third largest state. They include a campaign to root out critical race theory and other examples of what his administration calls woke ideology at the state's 12 public universities. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. A note for commuters in Boston. Parking restrictions are in place near the MGM Music Hall in Fenway. That's where Mayor Michelle Wu will deliver her State of the City address tonight. Lansdowne Street, Ipswich, and Van Ness Streets have restrictions through the evening. Officials say if you plan to be in the area, it's best to walk, bike, or take public transportation. You can hear the mayor's address tonight at 7.30 on WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family, and because of that understanding in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. Water is water, right? Not right. We're trying to make health and sustainability 50 times more fun. I'm Kai Rizdal, the art of selling H2O, that story. The rest of the day's business news and the numbers from Wall Street, of course, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The U.S. and Germany are sending battle tanks to Ukraine as Russia's invasion nears the one-year mark this month. 
The reversal gives European nations cover to send their own equipment. The U.S. is sending Ukraine 31 Abrams tanks after suggesting earlier the equipment is too complex and difficult to maintain. But the Pentagon is also providing U.S. support to train and maintain that equipment. Meanwhile, Germany, the Chancellor Olaf Scholz there, told his country's parliament today that it was right to wait before sending battle tanks to Ukraine so that it could work with its international partners. Here's NPR's Rob Schmitz from Berlin. Schultz made the announcement that Germany would send 14 Leopard 2 battle tanks to Ukraine and that it would also authorize partner countries like Poland to send their Leopard tanks too. He also said that Germany would not advocate a no-fly zone over Ukraine and that it would also not send ground troops into Ukraine. That's NPR's Rob Schmitz. The Biden administration says it will begin collecting information on claims of unfair practices in the rental housing market. NPR's Jennifer Ludden tells us it's part of a wider push to protect tenants amid sky-high rents and a housing shortage. Agencies will assess possible wrongdoing in tenant screening. Background checks may include wrong information, but people denied housing over that are not always told why. The agencies will also look into people unlawfully denied because they have a housing voucher subsidy. A White House official says it's not clear yet how agencies might take action against such wrongdoing, but that transparency alone could be a check. The administration will also explore possible limits on, quote, egregious rent increases in federally backed housing. Tenant activists have pushed for such rent controls. Landlord groups strongly oppose them, saying it would discourage investors and make the affordable housing shortage even worse. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Washington. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A large swath of the MBTA's Orange Line will once again be shut down for track work. The closure will affect the stretch from Back Bay through Ruggles stations this weekend. The same stretch will also be shut down for portions of next month, but the T hasn't given the dates yet. The track work will include replacing rail fasteners to allow for speedier travel. The newly announced closures expand on an already planned shutdown this weekend on the Orange Line to accommodate the demolition of the government center garage. Healthcare leaders are applauding Governor Maura Healy's pick for the state's Secretary of Health and Human Services. Healy has tapped Kate Walsh. She is the CEO of the state's biggest safety net hospital. WBR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey has more. As chief executive of Boston Medical Center, Walsh launched initiatives promoting health equity and access to addiction treatment. Tim Foley, Massachusetts head of the Healthcare Labor Union 1199 SEIU, says Walsh understands the many challenges facing the healthcare system and its workers. But I think she's got a lot to learn as it relates to nursing homes and home care, and that's an area where we hope to work with her as well as on the issues that are affecting hospital workers. A consumer advocacy group and the State Hospital Association also praised Walsh's leadership skills and experience. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Because of Walsh's new job, Boston Medical Center Health System President Dr. Alastair Bell will serve as interim CEO. Lawrence Police Chief Roy Vasquez has been placed on paid leave. A spokesperson for the mayor said today the leave will allow the city time to continue an ongoing investigation that involves the police department. The city declined to comment further on the matter. The police union in Lawrence took a no-confidence vote against Vasquez in November. They accuse him of creating a hostile and inequitable work environment. WBR has reached out to Lawrence Police for comment. Vasquez is also the head of the Massachusetts Major Cities Police Chiefs Association. The forecast is coming up.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Snow now is falling in central and western Mass. should reach us sometime over the next couple of hours and leave about an inch on the ground in Boston, maybe two inches north and west of the city, possibly three outside Route 495. That should be followed by heavy rain overnight tonight. Strangely high temperatures up around 50 degrees overnight and by dawn tomorrow. That should melt away most of the snow. Tomorrow should be overcast. Temperatures falling through the day to about 40 degrees by sunset. 37 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. January 8th rocked Brazil. That is the day when thousands of supporters of Jair Bolsonaro stormed Congress and the Supreme Court and the presidential office. Bolsonaro had tried and failed in his bid for re-election as president. His supporters claimed with no evidence that the vote was rigged. Brazilian officials are now investigating events that triggered the riots, but there is one key player missing, Bolsonaro himself. The now ex-president is now living in Florida, where he makes regular appearances, poses for photos with supporters and keeps a conspicuous distance from Brazil's upheaval. NPR national security correspondent Sergio Olmos visited the Florida neighborhood where Bolsonaro is staying. Hey there, Sergio. Hey, Mary Louise. Hey, so tell me more. Where exactly is he in Florida? So he's staying at a vacation home owned by a Brazilian MMA fighter in a suburb outside Orlando. It's near Walt Disney World. Uh, There's a few dozen people that go see him every day. There was 40 to 50 people when I was there last week. Um, Seeing him, there's a mix of emotions among the crowd. It's like seeing a celebrity or going to church. People uh, park their cars on the on a on a dirt road outside the skated community. They a lot of them are rental cars. They walk past the security gate to get in and wait patiently on the sidewalk outside of his house. And they're they're dressed up again like they're going to church. Very nice. There's families, kids. Some people bring Brazilian flags with them. It's a really wholesome atmosphere. Uh-huh. And there's this informal schedule where Bolsonaro will come out in the morning and again in the afternoon, and people kind of wait around to see. Uh, exactly what time will come out. And we saw him come out and people were just aghast to to see the ex-president. Sorry, every day he comes out twice a day and greets supporters? Yeah, and it's informal. It's not guaranteed. So people are kind of waiting and talking to each other like, has he come out today? What time? And stuff like that. All right. So you were there one afternoon. Tell Tell me what that moment was like, what you saw. Yeah, most of the people there are Brazilian expats. Some are visiting the U.S. and they're from Brazil and they stop off to see him. Uh, it's near Walt Disney World again, so it's kind of like a tourist attraction in some ways. Uh, and then some of the people who, who I saw there were just staying in the area. It's a vacation resort kind of area. And we saw a group of people um, walking by and ask, who is this man that everyone's taking pictures with? And they were stunned to learn it's the former president of Brazil. And they got in the queue and, and took a photo with him as well. Again, it's all very informal. 
Bolsonaro does not have a huge entourage or even official security. There's a, there's a Brazilian man who's kind of acting as a handler, telling people to stay in a, in a single file line, get stay out of traffic. And Bolsonaro himself seems to at times enjoy me- meeting and greeting supporters. And at times, to be honest, he looks a bit annoyed. Were you able to talk to them? Were you able to ask what do they make of the riots on January 8th and other events in Brazil? Yeah, people were happy to talk, and they aren't deterred by the riots of January. They, they're, some of these people that are in Orlando visiting him, obviously, are some of his most fervent supporters. They don't see any kind of thing wrong with January 8th. And, and one thing that really struck me was talking to people there was their media diet, the role of social media. Uh, some of these supporters were telling me that at this point they almost exclusively get their news from social media, where, of course, conspiracy theories and fake news on there look just like real news. Uh, here's what one supporter, Lutty Sutton, told me that she was visiting Florida from Brazil. Yeah, because television don't say nothing. They, they are lying. Television, TV, radios, newspaper, magazines, nobody say, says nothing. Only social media. So, social media, only. You have to follow all the persons that you believe. Instagram, Twitter, Tinder, all of them. And we saw this with January 8th, like January 6th here in the United States, the role that social media played in ramping up supporters and spreading disinformation. So interesting. And I'll just note in passing that, that Bolsonaro is uh, in a part of Florida, not so down, not so far down the road than uh, Mar-a-Lago and another former president. That is NPR National Security Correspondent Sergio Olmos. Thank you so much. Thank you. Does this sound familiar? <coughs> I just feel sick. For many families with young children, the last few months have felt like a relentless onslaught of stuffy noses, fevers, and endless coughing. If you are among those living in this viral stew, NPR health correspondent Maria Godoy is here with a bit of scientific comfort. I wanted to report this story last month, but I was too sick with COVID. My kid gave it to me. Sorry, Mom. My colleagues on the health reporting team would have done the story instead, but they've been sick too, thanks to their kids. And we're far from alone in our woes. Like so many parents out there, my husband and I have been sick all winter. We've been sneezing, coughing, had fevers. It's gross. That's Dr. Rachel Pearson. She's a pediatrician at UT Health San Antonio and University Hospital. She's also the mother of two-year-old Sam. I feel like half the time he has a virus has a runny nose, is coughing, to the point where my dad was like, is there something wrong with Sam? But as Pearson tells her dad and the parents of her own young patients, this seemingly never-ending cycle of sniffles is normal, if miserable. When I counsel parents, I say, you can have a viral infection every month. Some kids are going to cough for four weeks to up to six weeks after a virus. And so they're going to catch their next virus before they even stop coughing from the last one, which means that some totally healthy kids are going to have symptoms for an entire year or even more. Especially once kids start at daycare or school. In fact, if you've ever described your child as an adorable little germ vector, Dr. Carrie Byington says you're not wrong. And she's got hard data to back that up. We all think it, but it was really incredible to have the definitive proof of it. Byington is a pediatric infectious disease specialist and executive vice president of the University of California Health System. Back in 2009, when she was at the University of Utah, Byington and her colleagues wanted to study the role kids play in the transmission of respiratory viruses. 
So they recruited 26 households to take nasal samples of everyone living in the home every week for an entire year. What they found was eye-opening. We saw as soon as a child entered the house, the proportion of weeks that an adult had an infection increased uh, significantly. And more kids meant more infections. For families with two, three, or four kids, someone at home had an infection a little more than half the year. And the youngest kids, those under five, they had a viral infection 50% of the time. And Byington notes, they weren't even looking at other kinds of infections like strep throat. So obviously there could be other things that happened uh, throughout the year to even make it seem worse. Byington says all of this means that in the grand scheme of things, the number of viruses kids are getting these days is normal, but it's all more intense because of pandemic disruptions. Kids who were kept at home instead of going to daycare or school didn't encounter the viruses they normally would have, so they didn't get a chance to build immunity to them over time. And so what might have been spread out in the past over 12 months, they were now seeing it all at once in this very concentrated time. Byington says the pandemic also disrupted the seasonality of viruses. Flu season hit earlier than usual this year, as RSV and COVID were also circulating. Young children without prior exposure to these viruses were hit especially hard. Pediatric hospitals were overwhelmed. The good news is that this so-called triple-demic of viruses seems to be easing up. New data from the CDC show the number of ER visits for flu, COVID, and RSV dropped the lowest they've been since September for all age groups. But of course, the respiratory virus season isn't over yet. Maria Godoy, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered. For every sports team, there are fans, and then there are super fans. The Brooklyn Nets have Mr. Whammy. The 86-year-old is a fixture at home games wearing his Nets jersey over a red shirt, shouting and gesturing behind the opponent's basket, trying to hex players into missing foul shots. Reporter Jeff London met Mr. Whammy at a recent basketball game in Brooklyn. The moment the whistle blows for a foul shot, Mr. Whammy, all five foot seven of him, springs into action. He's doing his best to distract and put a whammy on the player making the free throw. His pinky and index fingers are extended, and he's shaking both hands. He even has his own polite trash talk. Okay, three, look at me, look at me, three. Three is San Antonio Spurs guard Keldon Johnson, and this time Mr. Whammy's hex works. I got one. Mr. Whammy is Bruce Resnick, a Brooklyn native who's been coming to Nets games since they were in New Jersey. I'm 86 years old and having the best time of my life, thanks to the Nets. Mr. Whammy attends every game with his wife, Judy, a.k.a. Mrs. Whammy. He and Judy met in high school and have been together ever since. She helped support Resnick through law school, and he still practices with his son. All three of his kids are lawyers, and his wife is the office manager. But Mr. Whammy's passion is the Nets. He got season tickets 25 years ago and started doing his thing a few years later. So now I get a little popularity in Jersey, and I get a call one day from this beautiful young lady going to the University of Michigan, and she says, I saw you on TV. That's all I had to hear. That's all I had to hear. Now I always wore a red shirt. I still wear my red shirt. 
back then he was known as Red Shirt. Resnick says he got his current nickname because he has his own code of honor. I don't want me any ex-net if they played only a day. So when former Nets star Jason Kidd got traded to the Dallas Mavericks. Now Jason gets up to take a foul shot and I don't give him the whammy. I an eagle on national TV say, hey, look at that. Mr. Whammy's not giving Jason Kidd the whammy. He gave me the name, just like that on national TV, and it stuck. Ian Eagle has been a Nets broadcaster for 29 years. He says Mr. Whammy's passion is infectious and surprisingly effective. The numbers don't lie, and Mr. Whammy keeps his own personal statistics. How do I know this? Because he will leave his stats on numerous voicemails on my cell phone. According to a recent Twitter post from the Nets, opposing teams only have a 70.3 foul shot percentage in Brooklyn, about eight points lower on average than across the rest of the league. Some opposing players, most notably LeBron James, have lodged complaints, but the Nets consistently stand by their man. As do Nets fans who love Mr. Whammy. At every break in the game, they come up and ask to take selfies with him and Mrs. Whammy. We have such love from the fans. They love us as much as we love them, and, and we're blessed. And after you turn that off, if you want to take a picture with us so you can show everybody. Are you kidding? Absolutely. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in Brooklyn. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the company behind Dungeons & Dragons is looking to clamp down on fan-made content, and fans don't like that. And in about 20 minutes, what a new poll reveals about why worker engagement in the U.S. is falling. Bruins and Celtics both have the night off tonight. Tonight at 7.30, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will deliver her first State of the City address, talking about how we get around, how and where we live, and live safely. You can hear her remarks live at 7.30 on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, with seven showrooms and design centers surrounding Boston and a new location in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com. Got a flood watch in effect this evening through tomorrow thanks to an extra rain on top of the snow melt. Be especially careful on the flooding on the streets. And if you have a favorite storm drain, clean it out. All those bunched up leaves can cause more flooding. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news, the news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. By far, the world's most popular tabletop role-playing game is Dungeons & Dragons. And it is having a moment. We're thieves, but we help the wrong person steal the wrong thing. 
and unleash the greatest evil the world has ever known. It's not just that there is a D&D movie coming out or that the characters in the Netflix series Stranger Things love it, or even that it helped lots of people through the pandemic. People were enjoying the escapism and they got really into Dungeons and Dragons during it all um, because it was a wonderful way in order to like not exist in, in this in this very scary plane of existence. That is Griffin McCulley. He runs the Griffin Saddlebag. That means that I am, you know, making magical swords and potions that make your hair stand on end and stuff like that. See, most people who play D&D customize it. They develop their own rule books, their own adventures and characters, their own variants of the game. Not only is that not frowned upon, it has been explicitly legal since the year 2000 per its open game license. It allows anyone to take certain parts of Dungeons & Dragons intellectual property, adapt it, and even sell it without any explicit permissions or royalty payments. For the Griffin Saddlebag and many third-party companies, developing these other ways to play the game is a business. But this month, the D&D community faced what it saw as an existential threat. We're all very scared and we're all doing our best and we love the community for sticking up with us. It's been a lot. D&D's publisher, Wizards of the Coast, which is a subsidiary of the giant toy and game company Hasbro, had been working on a new open game license. Drafts of that new OGL were leaked. And for third-party creators, it specified royalty payments, licensing agreements, commercial restrictions. It wasn't a very open license at all. Personally, I have not seen the tabletop role-playing game space ever react like this in mass to any news. Linda Kodega covered this controversy for io9, part of the site Gizmodo. The reaction was swift, a social media campaign, a mass unsubscription to official D&D digital products, announcements of alternative licenses. We responded as quickly as we could, and uh, we're responding even more strongly now. So strong feedback calls for a strong response. In an interview, the executive producer of Dungeons & Dragons, Kyle Brink, said the proposed OGL version 1.1 was very much still being developed internally when it leaked. He said the goal was not to further monetize D&D, but to protect it against hateful content and to address emerging technologies. Wizards of the Coast apologized for the proposed draft, and it put forward another completely different OGL draft, version 1.2, for public comment. This is much more friendly and much more open and is doing, honestly, a good job of listening. Griffin McCulley of the Griffin Saddlebag says this attempt at a license is better, but the community still has concerns. io9 journalist Linda Kodega says the whole episode reveals that Dungeons & Dragons is a game that does not need its owner. The thing about playing Dungeons & Dragons is that nobody actually plays by the rules. They have the rule book and like it's there and it's available, but there are so many ways to play Dungeons & Dragons maybe one group really wants to just like talk to people. Maybe one group is like, we are murder hobos and that is all we are going to do. Don't even try <laughs> to make us like talk something out because we're not going to do it. Uh, and then there are other people who are just like, we just want to have fun and like do resource gathering and like play with our friends. So the thing to remember is that every single person at a table who plays Dungeons and Dragons is using their imagination to create another kind of story and another way to use Dungeons & Dragons as a role-playing medium. And can you just help us understand culturally why it is so important for 
creators, for people who love to play this game, to have that open gaming license, to have the ability to create things based on the IP and to make money off of it. If the leaked OGL 1.1 that people saw in early January went through as proposed, there are so many third-party publishers out there that rely on the OGL 1.0 that was published in 2000 and then updated in 2016 that it could have caused a whole section of the business to go under and was seen by a lot of people as like a monopoly move on behalf of Wizards of the Coast. And creators, again, fans who are at the table and playing Dungeons and Dragons and doing whatever they want, they see that like this company is telling them like, you can only play your game the way we want you to play your game. And every single fan was like, absolutely not. <laughs> So last week, Wizards of the Coast issued a new draft OGL without royalties or co-licensing, and there's now a period of community input. What have you heard from creators and people who are invested in Dungeons & Dragons? Are they satisfied? It's certainly an improvement on the OGL 1.1, and the, the fact that Dungeons & Dragons is putting some core rules into a Creative Commons license is has given people like some hope that they will be open to feedback and like exchanging ideas and editing the OGL 1.2. But a lot of people are still very dissatisfied by the fact that Dungeons and Dragons still wants to deauthorize the 1.0. Um, and then there's just the fact that people don't believe Dungeons and Dragons. They don't believe Wizards of the Coast when they say they're acting in good faith. There's no more trust left, and people are really upset by the fact that if they did it once, they will attempt to do it again, and the risk of getting back in bed with Wizards of the Coast is too great. What do you think that people who are not creators, who do not play Dungeons & Dragons, what do you think that we should take away from what has happened here with this license and Wizards of the Coast and the gaming community that loves to play tabletop games? I think that the big takeaway is that you shouldn't let corporations have a hold on your imagination. And you shouldn't let corporations tell you what to do with your work. I think this is something that a lot of people get up in arms over where people say that, you know, corporations can defend their copyright and corporations can defend their intellectual property. And I'm like, to what end? Like, how long will people accept that multi-billion dollar corporations own stories, own play. It's something of a an inflection point where people are starting to realize and take ownership of the fact that they are creative and they are imaginative and like nobody can tell them they're not. It's an incredibly powerful and important like message, just that like you own your stories. Nobody can take them away from you. And if they try, riot. That is Linda Kodega, writer at io9. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Juana. It was really nice. Dungeons & Dragons executive producer Kyle Brink said that public comment on the new OGL will run through February 3rd. Within two weeks of that date, Brink says the company will respond. And he says it will keep running feedback cycles as needed. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate, at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. The oncoming bout of winter weather should not stick around long, literally. Snow over the next several hours should leave an inch on the ground in Boston, maybe two inches north and west of the city, possibly three outside 495. Should be followed by a heavy rain overnight tonight and high temperatures up around 50 degrees by daybreak tomorrow, so that should melt away most of the snow, if not all. Tomorrow should be overcast with temperatures falling through the day to about 40 degrees by sunset. Still 37 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app, or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. With a potential of default looming, Washington looks for answers on how to solve the debt ceiling impasse and tensions are on the rise. It's definitely a more strained this time around. You know, there's greater polarization within the Beltway, so it's going to be a battle. It's Wednesday, January 25th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, a new Gallup report finds employee engagement in the U.S. fell last year. Younger workers in particular felt they had fewer opportunities to learn and grow. Many developed countries are facing labor shortages as their populations change. The answer to the problem could be migration. No question that there's an ample supply of workers who'd be willing to move and take up the jobs that the rich world needs and just don't have youth to take. Also, Pope Francis says the Catholic Church must work to put an end to laws that criminalize homosexuality. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is announcing that the United States will send 31 Abrams tanks to Ukraine to help the country defend itself against Russia. The move follows a decision by Germany to send its Leopard tanks and to allow other European countries to do the same. Speaking at the White House today, Biden said the sophisticated machinery will enhance Ukraine's capacity to defend its territory. Together with our allies and partners, we've sent more than 3,000 armored vehicles, more than 8,000 artillery systems, more than 2 million rounds of artillery ammunition, and more than 50 advanced multi-launch rocket systems, anti-ship and air defense systems, all to help counter Ukraine's brutal aggression that's happening because of Russia. Biden also emphasized that the buildup is not meant to expand the war into Russia, adding that it's not an offensive threat. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky called the move an important step on the path to victory.
The historic port city of Odessa in Ukraine has been added to UNESCO's list of world heritage in danger. NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports the agency is taking emergency measures to help protect the site. Odessa, known for its ornate Italian and French-inspired architecture, has been called the Pearl of the Black Sea. Audrey Azoulay, UNESCO's director general, calls it a world city that has left its mark on cinema, literature, and the arts. UNESCO says Odessa will have access to technical and financial assistance to help protect it from further destruction caused by the war. UNESCO also added ancient sites in Yemen and Lebanon to the World Heritage in Danger list. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. Vice President Kamala Harris will visit Monterey Park, California tonight, days after the mass shooting that killed 11 people. NPR's Liz Baker is there. Vice President Harris is scheduled to meet with and offer condolences to victims' families here in Monterey Park, where Saturday's mass shooting interrupted Lunar New Year celebrations in this majority Asian community. On Tuesday night, hundreds gathered outside City Hall to collectively mourn the dead. Wen Leao took peace from the gathering. She lives alone, she says, and has been struggling in the days since the shooting. I have a sense nobody cares what happening. And now knowing that other people care really, really touched me. The air filled with the smell of flowers and scented candles and sobs of grief as city leaders read the names of all 11 people killed and a message of condolence from President Biden. Liz Baker, NPR News, Monterey Park. Stocks traded mixed today on Wall Street. The Dow was up nine points. The Nasdaq Composite fell 20. The S&P 500 closed down a fraction of a point. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A new report shows Massachusetts has a primary health care problem. A rising number of primary care doctors are leaving their practices, and fewer are picking primary care as a career. As WBUR's Dave Faniff tells us, the report finds the situation is unstable and threatens medical performance. The report by Massachusetts Health Quality Partners and the Center for Health Information and Analysis finds a lack of investment, diminished capacity, and equity gaps. Health Quality Partners CEO Barbara Rabson says less than 8% of all medical spending is for primary care and more than a third of residents struggle to get primary care. When you put this all together, you see a system that has been fragile for a while, but when you add all these components together of the financing and then you add performance and equity and capacity, it draws a picture that's pretty scary. Rabson says without a strong primary care system, there will be more backups in hospitals. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. The State Department of Transportation says it will continue to pursue plans to replace the two aging bridges over the Cape Cod Canal. The pledge comes after the federal government this month rejected a $1.9 billion grant application for the project. It was the second time federal officials denied funding. The Army Corps of Engineers maintains the Sagamore and Bourne bridges. Massachusetts Department of Transportation, or MassDOT, project manager Brian Cordero says additional funding opportunities will be available annually through 2026. MassDOT and the Army Corps are going to continue to aggressively work to improve the competitiveness of our grant application in future years uh, by identifying those other funding sources and also just continuing to advance the program. 
The state is preparing to apply again this year. Two Massachusetts high school students are among 40 finalists for a National Science Prize. Linda He of the Commonwealth School in Boston and Diego Suchenki Lusteno of the Massachusetts Academy of Math and Science in Worcester are in the running for the 2023 Regeneron Science Talent Search. It is the nation's oldest math and science competition for high school seniors. Our latest storm is bringing snow to central and western Mass right now. It is expected to arrive in Boston soon, likely within the next hour. Here's WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce. Areas of snow will change to rain from south to north this evening with some heavier downpours through the overnight, so the little accumulation, coating to an inch in Boston, coating south of the city some one to three inch amounts north and west, especially outside of 495, will all get washed away. Some localized flooding will result overnight. Steady rain pushes offshore tomorrow at 5 a.m. A few leftover showers done 7 to 8 a.m. Now the wind will gust to 50 miles per hour for the south shore in Cape Cod, resulting in some isolated damage. It'll be breezy but warm tomorrow. High of 50. Another round of light snow and rain possible later Sunday and again for the middle of next week. It is 37 degrees now in the Boston area at 507. WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at Mott.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The federal government is now living on borrowed time and borrowed money. Last week, the U.S. bumped up against its debt ceiling. So now the Treasury Department has to juggle funds until Congress agrees to relax the government's $31 trillion borrowing limit. House Republicans have threatened to use the debt ceiling as a bargaining chip in hopes of extracting concessions. That sets the stage for a showdown that could be costly. We're going to talk through the politics and the economics of this, starting with NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Deirdre, what are House Republicans exactly demanding? Well, as part of his negotiations to be elected House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy agreed he would not allow any vote to increase the debt limit without spending cuts. President Biden and Democratic leaders have repeatedly argued they don't want to negotiate over paying the country's bills. Right now, there's no unified House Republican position. Speaker McCarthy did float the idea of doing what then Uh, Speaker Pelosi did under then-President Trump, they had a deal that capped federal spending for two years in order to raise the debt limit. But many conservatives really didn't like that idea. McCarthy is saying he will protect Social Security and Medicare. Some House Republicans, Senate Republicans have floated changes. But I talked to a lot of GOP members this week who just don't want to go there in terms of any cuts to politically popular retirement programs. Here's Louisiana Republican Clay Higgins. He's a member of the conservative House Freedom Caucus. Most of us will have no business cutting any kind of Social Security benefit or Medicare benefit. It's referred to as a benefit, but it's a contract with our elders. Deirdre, it sounds like there's not agreement among Republicans, let alone between Republicans and Democrats. What is the leader of the Senate Republicans, Mitch McConnell, who's been part of these talks in the past, saying about this one? Well, McConnell was a key player in the last big standoff, but right now he's saying the House is controlled by Republicans and he doesn't see any deal that the Senate could negotiate that would actually pass in the narrowly controlled House Republican, uh, House controlled by Republicans, only a four seat margin. He told Republican uh, reporters yesterday a final deal would have to come between Speaker McCarthy and President Biden. They have agreed to sit down and are still sorting out a date. 
there are some Republicans who've gone through these past standoffs who say there needs to be a serious discussion about future reforms to programs like Social Security. And they say it's impossible to deal without with the debt without looking beyond the annual spending bills. Arkansas Republican Steve Womack stressed that the current spending fights really only focus on a third of the total federal budget. You have to look at the entire spending portfolio. And that means that you do have to have a full-throated discussion on entitlements because that's two-thirds of spending. Some moderate Republicans are making the argument that both parties help drive up the debt, so both need to come to the table with some kind of longer-term budget plan. We're talking about the financial standing of the United States government here, so I want to bring in our chief economics correspondent, Scott Horsley, who, Scott, you also chronicled an earlier debt ceiling showdown when your title was White House correspondent. (laughs) So what's your take on Republican demands here? Well, as you can tell, it's easier to talk about cutting government spending in the abstract than to say what you really want to do without. Uh, Just keep in mind, for every dollar the government spends, 25 cents goes to Medicare and other popular health care programs. 21 cents goes to Social Security, 13 cents for defense, 7 cents for veterans and retirees, and another 7 cents for debt service. So that's almost three quarters of all government spending right there. So how are markets reacting to what's happening in Congress? So far, markets believe this is going to get taken care of. They expect lawmakers to eventually cut a deal and avoid a disastrous default. But that's not to say they think it's going to be easy. Uh, Joan Feldbaum Vidra keeps an eye on government debt for the Kroll Rating Agency, and she acknowledged this is a challenging political environment. It's definitely a more strain this time around. You know, there's greater polarization within the Beltway. And the construct of the House with a narrow Republican majority on the heels of, well, we've all been following McCarthy's epic leadership vote, creates more uncertainty. So it's going to be a battle. It's going to be messy. It's worth remembering, though, Republicans in Congress easily raised the debt limit during the Trump administration, even as the federal government was running up trillion-dollar deficits even before the pandemic. These fights tend to come down to the wire. So where is the wire? How much time does Congress have? Yeah, it's a ways in the distance. Uh, The moves the Treasury Department's making right now should buy time at least until early June, maybe a bit longer. Although it's tough to know for sure because government spending and revenues can bounce up and down with the economy. So if, for example, we were to slide into recession this year, the crunch time could come sooner. As you say, Congress has a bad habit of waiting until the last minute, and we did learn back in 2011, the last time there was a showdown like this, that that can be costly. Uh, The government managed to avoid an actual default that time, but just flirting with it sent the stock market swooning, which hurt people's retirement accounts, short-term interest rates rose. Feldbaum Vitra says if you're worried about government debt, higher interest rates should be the last thing you want. It's not pretty. We've been to this rodeo before, and it makes the cost of debt higher. And the more we pay in interest, the less money there is further priorities, right? So it's not constructive. Now, some have suggested that even if the debt ceiling were not raised, the government could avoid a technical default by just paying bondholders ahead of everybody else. But there are both legal and practical questions about just how workable that would be. And there's also a political challenge. I mean, who wants to tell grandmom she's not getting her Social Security check or some young Marine he's not getting paid because bondholders have to be paid first. Uh, That's another reason Congress shouldn't play chicken with the full faith and credit of the United States. And if they do, there could be political consequences. Deirdre, who do you think would get the blame if there were a default or, or even a messy near miss? 
I mean, well, since House Republicans really push for this debate as part of the debt limit, they would likely get most of the blame if there were any kind of default. A lot of them are worried that they need to show voters that they can govern. There's also another debate coming over spending in the fall around the annual process of approving government spending bills. And I'll just say that that fall budget process, that's really the appropriate time to have an argument over government spending, not threatening to walk away from the bills the government has already run up. That's NPR's Scott Horsley and Deirdre Walsh. Thank you both. Thank you. Good to be with you. American workplaces have a problem. A growing number of people just aren't that into their jobs. A new Gallup report finds less than a third of people are engaged with their work. As NPR's Andrea Shu reports, that is not just an issue for workers. It could hurt their companies. This drop in employee engagement started in the pandemic, and it's only getting worse. Jim Harder is Gallup's chief workplace scientist. The younger workers in particular are less connected to their organization, less satisfied with their organization overall. Young millennials and Gen Zers reported feeling less cared for at work, less heard. Fewer of them said they have someone who encourages their development. Fewer have a best friend at work. Harder says that's become an important predictor of whether someone might recommend their company or consider looking for a different job. Having a friend at work matters more now than it did pre-pandemic. Gallup found engagement fell most among people who could work remotely but have to work on site. But the survey found another problem with fully remote workers. A growing number of them are now in a middle zone that Jim Harder equates to quiet quitting. They'll show up to the minimum required, but not much else, and they'll still look for other opportunities out there. These findings don't surprise Tanvi Sinha. She's an audit manager at the accounting firm Matthews, Carter & Boyce in Fairfax, Virginia. She started her career back when everyone was in the office every day, even Saturdays in the busy season. You develop that, that relationship with people. You make friends with people. You're spending most of the time at work. You're going out for lunches. So those are the things that you're missing, you know. Now that coming to the office is optional. But it's not just about being social, Sinha says. It can help your career to get a holistic view of your company. Working remotely, you're working on one project. You don't even know what kind of other projects your firm does or what kind of other people you can be working with. You have very little exposure. The Gallup survey backs that up. Across age groups and no matter where people were working, it found employees were less connected to the broader purpose of their companies, also less clear about what's expected of them. Jim Harder says that's worrisome. You could almost equate it to employees becoming a little bit more like gig workers. Who aren't as loyal to their employers, who aren't in it for the long haul. I believe the companies are having a reckoning. Stephanie Frias is chief people officer at Lyra Health, which provides mental health services to companies. With all the quiet and real quitting going on, she says companies are now realizing that workers want something different and expect something different. We're going through a time where what work means is being redefined and it's being challenged, right? What worked in the past isn't going to work. And what makes it hard is that no one truly has a playbook. Frias says focusing on mental wellness is key to increasing worker engagement and retention. What she's hearing from workers is this. I still want to engage in the workplace, but I want to do it in a way that is convenient and palatable to my lifestyle. The accounting firm where Tanvi Sinha works is trying to find a good balance. People aren't required to be in the office, but managers like Sinha do encourage their teams to come in, and preferably on the same days. Pick a few days, you know, mingle with people, talk to people. 
Sinha says technology can help. She does set up regular video calls with her team members to check in. But even so, there are pitfalls. Some people who were hired in COVID, I mean, I, I went to work after a long time and I couldn't even recognize that this is the person. Uh, <laughs> so, so that's bad on my part. Jim Harder at Gallup says good managers are now more important than ever. They're the ones who can make sure employees know what's expected of them and help employees feel cared for. Andrea Shu, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The significance of the U.S. decision to send some of its most state-of-the-art tanks to Ukraine, coming up in about 15 minutes. Also, Pope Francis wants countries in the Middle East, Asia, and Africa to get rid of their laws that make homosexuality a crime. Those stories coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Montgomery Carroll Group, guiding buyers and sellers in Brookline and Newton. More about Matt Montgomery, Lauren Carroll, and their team at mcgroupcompass.com. Wall Street stocks closed pretty much where they opened today. The Dow gained a small fraction. It was up 10 points to close at 33,744. S&P dipped a tiny fraction to close at 4016. And the Nasdaq lost nearly two-tenths of a percent to finish the day at 11,313. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren's calling on Cambridge-based Moderna to reconsider its proposed price increase for its COVID-19 vaccine. Warren and Vermont Senator Patrick, uh, Peter Welch sent uh, a letter to the company's CEO requesting information about the hike. Warren says the plan to charge as much as $130 a dose could prolong the COVID pandemic and leave many people unable to afford the vaccine. Moderna says its pricing will reflect the value of the COVID vaccine to patients and society, and it says the vaccines and boosters will still be available at no cost to the vast majority of people in the U.S. It's 520. Support for WBUR's Business Report comes from Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save, energy-saving solutions for your business, no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. Light rain and snow into the evening, just plain rain after 10 o'clock tonight. Temperatures about 50 in the middle of the night. Tomorrow, more rain in the morning and then cloudy skies, strong winds, still about 50 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There's an imbalance in global birth rates. China's population is shrinking for the first time in decades, raising fears that China's economy could shrink with it. Europe's population is quickly getting older, too. Meanwhile, parts of the developing world are facing a youth bubble. So could immigration help address both of these problems? Lant Pritchett is a development economist who studies labor markets and migration. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. Before we get to the question of immigration, explain why it matters if a country has a slowing birth rate. How does the number of babies born change a country's economic outlook? Well, the problem isn't so much that the overall population shrinks. It's that during the period after the birth rate falls, it's something we call inverting the demographic pyramid, which instead of there being a lot more young people than old people in it, the relative populations start to shrink. And you go from having lots of people in the labor force to support the elderly to headed towards equality of people in the labor force and people in the aged population. And that just has never happened in the history of the world. And it's not clear it's a sustainable way to sustain the social contract we have in which the young support the old. Beyond China, how much of the world is facing this problem? It pretty much is endemic across the rich industrial world. I've done calculations of from the standard UN projections. And over the next 30 years, there's going to be 100 million more old people, but 143 million less people in the workforce age category. So this is across the rich industrial world. Meanwhile, parts of the developing world are looking at the opposite problem. The 10 youngest countries in the world are all in sub-Saharan Africa. Could those countries help provide a solution to the countries that are aging? They definitely could and definitely would. Uh, Gallup surveyed people around the world of whether they would be willing to move to another country and something on the order of a billion people in the world said they'd be happy to move and work in another country. So no question that there's an ample supply of workers who'd be willing to move and take up the jobs that the rich world needs and just don't have youth to take. And yet immigration is not just an economic question, it's a political one. And political sentiment seems to be going in the opposite direction. Anti-immigrant attitudes are growing across Europe and in many parts of the highly developed world. That's true. But I think in part that's because We've traditionally forced two really high tension questions to be the same answer. One question is, who are the future citizens? Who are the future members of what we regard as us, our society, our nation? And the other question, though, is who are we going to allow to be legally present on our territory to do labor services? My feeling is if we allow those questions to be separated and we have a discussion about who are the immigrants that we want to form our future society as a separate for discussion about who are we going to allow to come to our country and work. I think once those questions are separated, we can manage the political and social consequences of migration while still meeting the very dire needs that these economies have to, you know, fill jobs that just won't otherwise be able to be filled. You're talking about something like temporary work visas. I was recently in the strawberry fields of southern Spain, which tried that kind of a program. And Spanish officials told me a lot of people skipped out and stuck around when they were supposed to have gone back at the end of harvest season. Is that inevitable? That is by no means inevitable, but it is a pressure. There is no question that once people are in a country where wages are four or five times their home country, there will be a tendency to stay. But I think the prospects for building a good industry that recruits, prepares, places, protects, and ensures compliance, I think we can build a good industry to do this. This is not impossible. I feel 
we're sort of in the position now that America was with prohibition. We wanted to ban all alcoholic beverages and it just wasn't enforceable. And so the path to more control of alcohol was through less control of alcohol, through legalizing these flows. I feel the path to better migration is through more migration. We have to acknowledge that these economies really need these workers. And if we really need these workers, we should set up fair, transparent, legally enforced ways in which they can come and in which we can ensure reliable compliance with return if that's part of the legal agreement. Does this serve the developing world too, or is it just a brain drain where talent goes to wealthier countries with an aging population? What I'm talking about is mainly labor mobility to meet the low skill needs. If you look at the US economy, over the next 10 years, the Labor Department says we're gonna have 5 million jobs that don't require a college degree. And yet over that same period, we're gonna have 3 million less workers 20 to 40. So what the rich world needs is not, in fact, high-skill, high-talent, brain-drain kind of people exclusively. They, they would love to get those people. But what I'm talking about is the people with core work skills. And I think that isn't a brain-drain. That is a wonderful thing for the developing world because people just aren't going to be able to create the numbers of jobs they need to in the developing world. And hence, it's super win-win. Lant Pritchett is research director with the think tank Labor Mobility Partnerships. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ari. Radio host Lynn Bramer was a Chicago institution. He died earlier this week. For decades, Bramer was the voice many Chicagoans woke up to. Well, I, for one, am glad you could join us this morning on 93XRT. I'm Lynn Bramer, your best friend in the whole world. It was Lynn who got me out of bed and sent me on my way. Writer Kathleen Falsani first heard Bramer's show on rock station WXRT as a student at Wheaton College. He wasn't just the guy putting on the records or reading an advertising spot. He was a lot more than that. Falsani and Bramer became friends. She says his thoughtfulness was on full display during his frequent segment, Lynn's Bin. Lynn's Bins were these essays that started with a question. Sharon Rizzo asks, Lynn, is riding a horse on the expressway a good way to make a statement? Michael Schechter asks, what do you want for Christmas? Somebody once asked me, what's your beef with Wisconsin and the Packers? He took it really seriously, but also with just that incredible humor that he had. I have no beef with Wisconsin. It's the Packers I can't stand. The simplest things are often the things we need most. A handshake, a high five, a hug. Riding a horse on the expressway is a bad way to treat a horse. And what statement are you actually... Bremer spent much of last year on medical leave because of prostate cancer. Just before Thanksgiving, he returned to the air and delivered one of his last Lynn's Bin essays. Today's Lynn's Bin comes from a question I heard a lot over the past few months. The question is, how are you doing? He talks about having an experience with a nurse in the hospital when he had a pathological fracture, I think is what it's called, where his leg just broke. It was the night before the femur surgery when the night nurse who witnessed the pain of my broken bone said, I've been praying on you. And he says, praying on me? You've been praying on me? You know, what are you, what are you talking about? And when I moved and winced in the hospital bed, she squeezed my left hand and began to pray for me aloud with such faith and fervor that it was hard not to be emotional. Just a kindness that comforted him and changed something. This woman, unknown to me a day before, was now offering me divine solace. For me and for countless others, Lynn was that virtual stranger 
who offered us divine solace every time he came on the radio and talked to us. How am I doing? I'm doing okay. And to tell you the truth, that's fantastic. Lynn Bramer was 68 years old. It's NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Americans have a love affair with eggs. But there aren't enough to meet demand, so prices are soaring. Substitutes are hitting the market to fill the gap and getting some interesting reviews and taste tests flavorful, spongy. What do the egg imitators tell us about agonomics? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Ukrainians are greeting American and German commitments of Abrams and Leopard tanks with joy and relief today. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley tells us this represents a new level of Western commitment to Ukraine as Russia's invasion nears one year. Leonid Polyakov, a defense consultant and former deputy defense minister of Ukraine, says he's taking the news with cautious optimism. Cautious because it took too long to get what we needed. But optimistic, he says, because the tanks will help Ukraine liberate its sovereign territory. Their delivery also opens the door to getting badly needed advanced air defense. So what we are lacking in terms of air defense is F-16s and uh, some similar platforms having missiles to intercept incoming ballistic operational tactical missiles like Iskander, for instance. Polyakov says Ukraine has successfully integrated the newer Western weapons and equipment with its old Soviet-era systems. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. In Memphis, Tennessee, federal authorities speaking during a news conference today say the investigation into the death of Tyree Nichols after a violent arrest by Memphis police may take some time. U.S. Attorney Kevin Ritz says he has spoken with Nichols' family about the investigation and is working with the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. I told them this federal civil rights investigation will be thorough, it will be methodical, and it will continue until we gather all the relevant facts. Nichols' death has led to three separate law enforcement investigations, and the five black officers were fired last week after an internal police probe determined they used excessive force and failed their duties to intervene and render aid. Stocks finished mixed today on Wall Street after a string of corporate earnings reports revived concerns about the Fed's efforts to bring inflation under control. The Dow added about nine points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is holding her first State of the City address tonight. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the in-person event will be held at the new MGM Music Hall in the Fenway. Wu did not give a State of the City speech last January. She was weeks into the job and COVID was surging. Tonight, Wu is expected to recap the accomplishments of her first full year in office and outline future policy proposals like rent control. Wu told WBUR's Radio Boston she hopes the concert venue will help set a forward-looking tone. We chose a venue that is newer and, you know, new energy in the city, love the flexibility, and and now this great asset for the arts community as well. Um, It's slightly larger, so we can accommodate more of our community members there as well. Former Mayor Marty Walsh used to hold his State of the City addresses in Symphony Hall. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. WBUR will have special coverage of the speech tonight on air and on the WBUR app. The mayor is expected to speak at 7.30. Students at Massachusetts public colleges and universities may be in line for more financial aid in the future. The State Board of Higher Education is looking at two proposals that would provide more aid dollars to low- and moderate-income students. The board's chair said today he endorses both proposals and said they could be paid for with revenue from the state's new millionaire's tax. Combined, the measures will cost the state $335 million. Some Massachusetts state lawmakers are pushing for an all-electric commuter rail. Newly filed legislation in both the Massachusetts House and Senate proposes a timeline for a fully electric MBTA service by the end of 2035. Senator Brendan Crichton filed the legislation. He's chair of the Joint Commission on Transportation and says some of the work is already underway. It's certainly an ambitious timeline, but there's a great sense of urgency here in the legislature and across our communities. Uh, There's no way we're going to reach our emissions goals uh, if we don't electrify our public transportation fleet. Crichton says an added benefit of fully electric rail is more efficient start and stop times, meaning more frequent service. And the mother of two children who were killed in their Duxbury home will be charged with their murder. Plymouth County District Attorney Timothy Cruz says 32-year-old Lindsay Clancy remains hospitalized after an apparent suicide attempt. Prosecutors say Clancy's three children were found strangled yesterday. Five-year-old Cora and three-year-old Dawson died. A seven-month-old boy remains hospitalized. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. Snow has arrived in the Boston area. We should have anywhere from a coating to two inches around Boston and in parts north and west. Outside, 495, up to three inches of snow. But then heavy rain moves in tonight. Temperature's about 50 degrees, so a lot of melting going on. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It's official. American tanks are headed to Ukraine. The U.S. is sending 31 Abrams tanks, a move designed to help Ukraine defend its territory and also designed to send a message to Russia. The U.S. and its allies are committed to the fight. The expectation on the part of Russia is we're going to break up. We're not going to stay united, but we are fully, thoroughly, totally united. President Biden announcing the move today at the White House, which is where we now find John Kirby, the president's spokesman on the National Security Council. He joins us live. John Kirby, welcome back. Thank you so much, Mary Louise. Good to be with you. Good to have you with us. Ukraine, as you know, has been calling for tanks all through this war. The U.S. resisted and resisted and resisted. Why send them now? Well, we never took tanks off the table, uh, and tanks, frankly, have been in discussion for months. Um, But uh, this was a discussion that we had not only with the Ukrainians, but with our allies and partners. And we want to make sure with every system we send 
that we're sending systems appropriate to the fight that the Ukrainians are in and the fight that we think they're going to be in in coming weeks and months. And this decision today is really you've got to take a couple of steps back and look at it in the context of the combined arms training that we're doing with Ukrainian battalions right now outside the country. They believe, and, and we believe they're right to believe, that in the spring and the summer months uh, that they are they're going to face uh, a, a Russia uh, coming back in an offensive way and that they want to be able to conduct offensive operations of their own. And they want to do it in a combined arms fashion, which means you need to maneuver in open terrain uh, and on vast parts of ground. And that means you need armored capabilities like the Bradleys and the strikers we've sent. And that, of course, includes tanks. So this decision was really the culmination of weeks of diplomatic conversations about how do we help Ukraine uh, in the fight that we expect them to be in uh, when the winter uh, fades and spring and summer months come. But on the Abrams specifically, the Pentagon's top policy guy, this is Colin Call, told reporters just last week that the U.S. was not going to send Abrams to Ukraine because they're too hard to maintain. He said, and I quote, the Abrams tank is a very complicated piece of equipment. It's expensive. It's hard to train on. John Kirby, are these things no longer true? All those things are still true, Mary Louise. And we have been nothing but open and transparent, certainly the Pentagon has been, uh, about certain challenges with having uh, a, you know, a foreign military uh, operate and train and, and, and maintain Abrams tanks. But there are other countries that, uh, that have purchased Abrams tanks and, and are able to operate them. And so we're confident that the Ukrainians can get there. But the difference is Ukraine is at war. And they are in the midst of, of an invasion by a hostile neighboring power, uh, and they are losing uh, civilians and troops every day. So we need to make sure that we tailor uh, the delivery of Ukraine's in a way, I'm sorry, Abrams, pardon mm -hmm, me, mm -hmm. that we deliver the, uh, that we tailor the delivery of Abrams tanks in a way that the Ukrainians can absorb it effectively. So that's why we're going to start with this battalion. That's why it's going to take many months for them to get there. No. But we're not going to waste time, Mary Louise. We're going to train those troops. We're going to help them put in a supply chain process so that they have the parts and supplies and the technical ability and to the repair these, to run these, right. these tanks. Yeah. Now, it's not just Abrams that are headed to Ukraine. This announcement was made in with Germany announcing they are going to send Leopard tanks. Was the That's U.S. Right. announcement time to give Germany cover? This was a very coordinated uh, announcement by both uh, the United States uh, and Germany. I mean, we've been talking to our German counterparts now for many weeks. Uh, tanks have been certainly on the agenda. Uh, they were on Friday when Secretary Austin was in Ramstein uh, on the Ukraine contact group. And today's announcement was very much coordinated with the, with the Germans, as, as it should be. As the president said, uh, we we are are united. We want to certainly appear as though we are united because, again, that's really important, too. Yeah. Um, President Biden went out of his way not to threaten Russia today. He stressed this is about helping Ukraine defend its own territory. He said it's not an offensive threat to Russia. There is no offensive threat to Russia. Can you elaborate on the messaging going on there? We have been from the very beginning uh, um, not interested and having this war in Ukraine escalate to make it what Putin claims it is, a, a war of, of U.S. versus Russia, it's not. Um, and we don't want to see the war uh, escalate to that level. That wouldn't be good for us. Russia certainly wouldn't be good for Ukraine. So the president's comments today were entirely consistent with how he has talked about uh, this war from the very beginning. And, and the Russian propaganda today, you know, they're out there saying that these tanks are an escalation and that they're an offensive threat. And the president wanted to get ahead of that and make it clear that they're not. Now, look, Mary Louise, they are absolutely a threat 
to Russian forces inside Ukraine. Uh, they need to know that. They need to understand that. These are well, very capable tanks. But that's they don't my, pose that's my last to... question. In the few seconds we have left, how big a game changer does the White House expect these U.S. tanks to be? What we do think will be a significant enhanced capability for Ukraine is all the armored capability. You've got to keep it in context of everything that's being uh, given to Ukraine here for their combined arms operations. Right. And the tanks are a part of that. They are significant. They will have a significant impact. And that's why, quite frankly, okay. we gave them the equivalent of a one Ukrainian battalion so that it wasn't okay. some symbolic gesture. It was actually have an operational impact. That is NSC spokesman John Kirby at the White House. Pope Francis has said the Catholic Church must work to put an end to laws that criminalize homosexuality. Those laws are common in some parts of the world and sometimes impose the death penalty. NPR Silvia Poggioli reports he's the first pope to back such a repeal. In a wide-ranging interview with the Associated Press, Pope Francis quoted from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, saying gay people must be welcomed and respected and should not be marginalized or discriminated against. He said there must be a distinction between a crime and a sin. Being homosexual is not a crime, but it is a sin, Francis said, adding, but first, let's distinguish between a sin and a crime. As an example, he said, it's also a sin to lack charity with one another. The Pope acknowledged that Catholic bishops in some parts of the world support laws that criminalize or discriminate against homosexuality. He told the interviewer the Church should work to put an end to anti-LGBTQ legislation, stressing it must do this. A few months after his 2013 election as Pope, Francis uttered a phrase that would define his papacy as inclusive. If someone is gay and he searches for the Lord and has goodwill, who am I to judge? And in the last 10 years, he has ministered publicly to the gay and transgender communities. But Catholic Church teaching holds that homosexual activity is, quote, intrinsically disordered. And Francis has been criticized by LGBTQ activists for the Vatican's 2021 decree that the Church cannot bless same-sex unions because it said, God cannot bless sin. Following the interview, Francis de Bernardo, executive director of New Ways Ministry, which promotes the rights of the Catholic LGBTQ community, rejoiced. In a statement, he said, the Pope's words highlight the Catholic value of protecting human dignity, which too many church leaders have refused to apply to the oppressive social situations of LGBTQ plus people around the world, including in the U.S. Asked about the recent wave of criticism against him from conservative cardinals and bishops following the death of former Pope Benedict XVI, Francis acknowledged the knives are out, but appeared unruffled. He said it's unpleasant, but better than keeping it under wraps. Silvio Poggioli, NPR News, Rome. This is NPR News. Former President Donald Trump can return to Facebook. The social media company says in the coming weeks it will lift a ban it put in place more than two years ago after Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. But will Trump come back, especially now that the social media landscape looks very different? NPR Shannon Bond is covering this story. Hi, Shannon. Hi there. Remind us how Facebook made its decision in 2021 to suspend Trump's account. 
Yeah, I mean, it happened just a day after the, the Capitol riot. They indefinitely suspended Trump uh, because at the time, CEO Mark Zuckerberg said there was just too much risk of violence. Trump had posted praising the rioters and not just Facebook, but also Twitter and YouTube saw this as incitement and he was kicked off all of these major platforms. And those decisions were just incredibly controversial. And in fact, for Facebook, it was so controversial. The company asked its then newly formed oversight board to weigh in. It's a that's a group of experts in law and human rights uh, that the company um, asked for feedback from on its tough content decisions. The board said that Facebook was justified in suspending Trump, but it took issue with this idea of an indefinite ban. It said they needed to be more specific. So Facebook came back a little bit later and said, OK, it's a two year ban. We'll take a look and then decide if it's safe to let him back. And now those two years are up. So two years later, what's changed? How is the company justifying its decision to let him back on? Well, Meta says the risk to public safety has sufficiently receded. Um, it didn't give a lot more explanation of how it reached that conclusion, but it does say it's going to put new guardrails in place. So if Trump breaks the rules again, you know, he could be suspended again for up to another two years. It says it could also restrict his posts, even if they don't outright break the rules. So if he starts posting QAnon conspiracy theories, if he questions an upcoming election, Facebook could make it harder to see those posts unless you go directly to Trump's page. Trump has started his own social media site, Truth Social. Uh, does it look like he'll actually return to Facebook? Yeah, I mean, this is a good question. You know, just now he took he's taking a victory lap on Truth Social. You know, he says, you know, a, a sitting president should never be banned. He claims that banning him is why Facebook has lost a ton of market value. But look, the Trump campaign had petitioned Facebook to let him back on. But we don't know if he's going to to use it again. You know, he was allowed back onto Twitter in November, but he has not been posting there. So far, he's only been using Truth Social. He actually has an agreement to post there first. But of course, all right, his reach there is much lower, right, than it would be on Twitter or Facebook. So, you know, we'll have to see if it's tempting to come back. And also, then there's this question of if he does start posting again, how long will he last? You know, he has been posting lots of, of false claims about the 2020 election on Truth Social. He's been amplifying QAnon conspiracies, you know, and those are the type of posts that could trigger these guardrails Facebook is talking about. Social media has changed so much in the last couple of years. If he does get back on these platforms, is he going to have the same reach he once had? I mean, that's a real good question. You know, Facebook does look weaker at this point than it did when it banned him. It has lost users and revenue for the first time. Twitter is in chaos under Elon Musk. You know, all of these smaller upstart sites, not just True Social, but Parler, Getter, Gab, you know, they have been fueled by, you know, appeals to conservatives who feel they are censored by big tech. But it's not quite clear if it's going to be easy for Trump to stay away. You know, Facebook played a really important fundraising role for him that's going to be important as he runs for president again in 2024. But I think this all, Ari, is just a reminder of how much power these big tech companies have to decide who gets a voice online. NPR's Shannon Bond. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening to WBUR. The new movie Missing is the latest iteration of a genre called screen life. We'll find out what it's all about in just about a minute here at 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture with local and sustainably sourced furniture. Seven showrooms and design centers around Boston and a new one in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com. 
Tonight at 7.30, you'll hear Mayor Michelle Wu's first State of the City address live on WBUR. And tomorrow morning, wake up to analysis and reaction. And also hear about the Supreme Court case that could radically reshape federal elections. So join us tomorrow morning. And remember, you can tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app. This note for commuters in Boston. Parking restrictions are in place near the MGM Music Hall in the Fenway. That's where Mayor Wu will deliver her speech tonight. Lansdowne Street, Ipswich, and Van Ness Streets have restrictions through the evening. Officials say if you plan to be in the area, it's best to walk, bike, or take public transportation. This is 90.9 WBUR, 37 degrees now at 549. WBUR supporters include the Lyric Stage with Preludes, Dave Malloy's musical fantasia in the mind of pianist Sergei Rachmaninoff, now through February 5th. Tickets at lyricstage.com. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Right now, you could use your little screen to buy a ticket to a big screen to watch a movie where, well, lots of different screens are used to solve a mystery. You're going through Kevin's email? You need to let the police handle this. I tried, but we're running out of time. Who are these people? The movie is Missing, a thriller about a young woman scouring the web to search for her mother who's gone missing in Colombia. It's the latest iteration of a genre aptly called screen life, in which plot develops purely through the screen devices that have come to dominate all of our lives. Today, our guides to screen life are Linda Holmes and Stephen Thompson, the hosts of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Hey, y'all. Hey. Hey. And they are joining us for the first installment of The Take. It's our new weekly segment of cultural criticism and commentary. And y'all, I want to get back to screen life more broadly in a moment. But first, if you could, could you just set the stage for us with this movie Missing? How does all the action play out there? Well, Missing, as you mentioned, is about a young woman played by Storm Reed, who her mother goes off on a vacation with her boyfriend to Columbia. And sort of vanishes and goes no contact. So this young woman who is stuck at home in front of her computer decides to use all of the tools at her disposal to figure out what happened to her mother and where her mother is. Okay, and to me, this sounds like the quintessential Gen Z movie, right? A young woman, young girl sitting at home with all of her devices, using them to open up a whole new world. Am I on the right page there? Yeah, I think it's a really effective movie. It's kind of taut and twisty, and it does a nice job, I think, of even though you're just it's a movie where you're just watching somebody use technology, it finds ways to work around that to keep the pacing really tight. It's really easy to imagine a movie like this getting bogged down in flashing cursors and, you know, dial-up modems grinding you know, the way kind of other movies have struggled, I think, to capture the process of using computers. Uh, You know, I I would probably say it's probably 25% twistier than it needs to be. (laughs) But but I I enjoyed it as a mystery and as just like a kind of fast-paced and engrossing movie. I really liked it too. You know, I think that these types of movies in some ways are 
thrillers that are only horror movies if you're the parent of a teenager because <laughs> one of the one of the things that they really stress is just how much um, information this young woman has access to and how much her mother and her mother's boyfriend are just miles behind her in what they understand. So I think it does a good job of being, like you said, that quintessential Gen Z movie, partly just because, you know, it's it's about being really, really immersed in that life. So one of the producers of this movie, Missing, Timur Bekmambatov, has been working in the genre for quite a while. What is his role in the origin of the genre? Well, as I understand it, he coined the term screen life for this genre of film. And he goes back to Unfriended, which was he was one of the producers of Unfriended, which is a horror movie that came out in 2014, which is basically if you think of Unfriended as a haunted Zoom call, that's approximately (laughs) what it is. And that's really all it is. But then he also was one of the producers of Searching, which came out in 2018, which is a more direct precursor to Missing, which starred John Cho as a father whose daughter had gone missing and he was trying desperately to catch up with his daughter's kind of digital life and figure out what happened to her. And and this same producer is part of all three of those movies. It is interesting to think about those movies as part of a genre and to think of screen life as a genre of movie making, because in some ways it's very innovative. It is a new way to make movies. It's also a way to get around a lot of the budget constraints associated with filmmaking. This is when when people talk about Unfriended, one of the first things they talk about is this is a movie that cost one million dollars to make and made more than 60 million dollars worldwide. And I don't like to get bogged down in the business side of things too much, but that is a very, very notable ratio of cost to uh, grosses. And it is a movie that you could have made in 2020 at the height of the pandemic with every actor locked in his or her respective apartments. And and yet at the same time, it is still engrossing and it is still shot through with dread and, and concern. It is a very effectively made movie for a movie that could have been made via Zoom. You know, one thing that I kind of think about when I think about the genre and wonder is, for each of you, do you think that screen life takes a moral stance about the technology that it uses? I mean, are we supposed to come away from watching these films feeling like these devices and screens are good for us or bad for us? I mean, I'm looking around right now at how many devices are right next to me, and it's a little overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit of both, right? This young woman would have no way to help her mother without all of these devices and this access to a tremendous amount of information. At the same time, these films also emphasize, um, particularly for younger people, the ability to kind of sink into these rabbit holes of isolation and kind of uncontrolled connection, right? Both. And I think that for me, it's less the morality and it's more, you know, in part, I think it's trying to reclaim some of what thrillers and horror films lost when technology came in because you now have to really explain situations of peril. Why does the person not pick up their cell phone and use it to get out of peril, right? You kind of have the, you know, I I lost it, somebody stole it, it's broken, it's out of battery or it's out of uh, range, right? And you have to kind of deal with those things because otherwise – 
thrillers and horror films have lost the opportunity to use certain kinds of isolation. So for me, this is kind of them reclaiming what's the upside for us? What are the new problems since we now have had, you know, now we have obstacles to using the old problems like the babysitter in the house where somebody cuts the phone cord? Yeah, it's a classic example of turning a weakness into a strength, right? You have budget limitations. This is a way of working around some budget limitations. You have narrative obstacles put up by people's increased connectivity, like Glinda said, where you can't just cut a phone line. Work with that. Use the phone technology to advance the story in different ways. So I, I like it as a as a means of turning weaknesses into into strengths. But but Stephen, for you as a parent, does this do, does this bother you morally when you think about it? Like do you think about like Oh, gosh, I'm glad that I don't have 14-year-olds now. <laughs> I mean, my kids are, are uh, 18 and 21. And, you know, I, I obviously I watched Missing kind of th- through a parental lens. I watched Unfriended through a parental lens. But all of these things with technology, they're Rorschach tests, right? You know, the technology is there if you use it. It is overused if you overuse it. I definitely watched Missing as a parent and thought, well, you know, surveillance works both ways. <laughs> parents, can use, parents can use that technology to surveil their kids just as easily as, as as it can work the other way around. So, you know, all these things, I, I think movies can run the risk of, of overly moralizing around the use of technology, but this technology, like anything else, it's, it's a tool. That's NPR's Stephen Thompson and Linda Holmes. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Orion with Women Talking, screenplay by and directed by Sarah Pauly, starring Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, Judith Ivey, with Ben Wishaw and Frances McDormand, now only in theaters. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and Nick Stone, authors of How to Be a Young Anti-Racist, Tuesday, February 7th. Tickets at portersquarebooks.com. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Tonight, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu delivers her first State of the City address. One issue she'll highlight. It is such a dire destructive housing market out there right now with people who have spent their whole lives here getting pushed out. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. 
I'm Lisa Mullins. Affordable housing and other chief topics for Mayor Wu coming up. For months, Ukraine has been demanding state-of-the-art Western tanks. The U.S. and Germany, considered to have the best tanks in the world, promised today to send them. Why the turnaround? And psychologists are finding a link between gun violence and the state of our collective mental health. But it's particularly impactful on our youngest generation because they have grown up with this their entire lives. These stories and the forecast are coming up 37 degrees now at 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has blocked two Democrats from serving on the Intelligence Committee. NPR's Lexi Shapiddle reports the move was not a surprise to Democrats, but escalates the ongoing battle between the parties over who is qualified for certain positions within the chamber. McCarthy blocked California Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell from keeping their seats on the Intel Committee, citing concerns for, quote, national security. The panel is a permanent select committee, which means the Speaker has the authority to approve or reject appointees. Schiff and Swalwell both previously served on the committee and both were involved in the impeachments of former President Trump. Speaking to reporters Wednesday, Swalwell accused McCarthy of exacting, quote, political vengeance. The Speaker of the House is using his power to go after his political opponents and to pick them off the field. Schiff and Swalwell will keep their other committee positions. Schiff is expected to serve on the House Judiciary Panel. Lexi Chappell, NPR News, Washington. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz told the country's parliament today that it was the right thing to have waited to send battle tanks to Ukraine in order to work with its international partners in doing so. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports from Berlin. Scholz made the announcement that Germany would send 14 Leopard 2 battle tanks to Ukraine and that it would also authorize partner countries like Poland to send their Leopard tanks too. And I will ausdrücklich sagen, es war richtig. Schultz told the German parliament that waiting to make this decision and to not be pushed to do it was the right decision because it allowed Germany to work in collaboration with its international partners. He also said that Germany would not advocate a no-fly zone over Ukraine and that it would also not send ground troops into Ukraine. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. Former President Donald Trump will soon be able to return to Facebook and Instagram. NPR Shannon Bond reports the platform's parent company, Meta, says it will lift a two-year ban that was put into place after the January 6th insurrection. Suspending Trump's account for inciting violence was the most controversial decision Facebook ever made. Now the social network is reinstating the former president and putting a spotlight on the power of tech companies to decide who gets a voice online. Facebook has played a crucial fundraising role for Trump, which will be important as he runs for president again in 2024. Twitter also banned Trump after the Capitol insurrection, but new owner Elon Musk reversed that decision in November. So far, though, Trump has not returned to Twitter. Instead, he's sticking to his own platform, Truth Social, where he's been posting false claims about the 2020 election and amplifying conspiracy theories. Shannon Bond, NPR News. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow was up nine points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. More than a third of Massachusetts residents had some difficulty getting needed health care in 2021. 
That's according to a newly unveiled dashboard from the Center for Health Information and Analysis. The analysis also found that fewer medical professionals are offering primary care in the state. The president of the Massachusetts Health Quality Partner says a strong primary care system makes the health care system better for everyone. Health care leaders are applauding Governor Maura Healy's pick for the state secretary of health and human services. Healy has tapped Kate Walsh. She's the CEO of the state's biggest safety net hospital. WBR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports. As chief executive of Boston Medical Center, Walsh launched initiatives promoting health equity and access to addiction treatment. Tim Foley, Massachusetts head of the Healthcare Labor Union 1199 SEIU, says Walsh understands the many challenges facing the healthcare system and its workers. But I think she's got a lot to learn as it relates to nursing homes and home care, and that's an area where we hope to work with her as well as on the issues that are affecting hospital workers. A consumer advocacy group and the State Hospital Association also praised Walsh's leadership skills and experience. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Because of Walsh's new job, Boston Medical Center Health System President Dr. Alastair Bell will serve as interim CEO. A large swath of the MBTA's Orange Line will once again be shut down for track work. The closure will affect the stretch from Back Bay through Ruggles Station this weekend. The same stretch will also be shut down for parts of next month, but the T has not yet said what dates that will be. The track work will include replacing rail fasteners to allow for faster travel speeds. The newly announced closure expands on an already planned shutdown to accommodate the demolition of the government center garage. Snow is moving central and eastern Massachusetts now. WBUR's meteorologist Daniel Noyce says the rain will ultimately win out as the night goes along. A little bit of everything out there. The rain snow line will make northward progress through this evening. So minor accumulations of a coating south of Boston, up to an inch in the city and some one to three inch amounts north and west, especially outside of 495, will get washed away as it rains hard tonight. In fact, around an inch of rain coming down, localized urban and low-lying areas may flood. Wind gusts to 50 miles per hour tonight into early tomorrow along the coast of the south shore to Cape Cod may result in some isolated damage. Tomorrow, rain is gone by 8 a.m., then the sun breaks out. It'll be breezy and warm with a high of 50. Next chance of rain and snow comes later Sunday. In the Boston area now, 37 degrees at 6.07. WBUR supporters include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia. For 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For months, Ukraine has been demanding state-of-the-art Western tanks. And for months, they have been denied. Today, that changed. The U.S. and Germany promised to send these tanks. Well, these two countries are considered to have the best tanks in the world. So let's hear from both capitals. We are joined from Berlin by NPR's Rob Schmitz. Hey, Rob. Hey there. And from Washington by NPR's Greg Myrie. Hiya, Greg. Hi, Mary Louise. Hi, Greg. You start. The U.S. had been adamant that it would not be sending these Abrams tanks. Today, it changed tack. Do we know why? Well, I think there's both a military reason and a political reason. Um, On the military front, the U.S. has acknowledged that Ukraine needs tanks, but it kept saying the Abrams, which is the main U.S. tank, just wasn't a good fit. It's considered the world's best, but also the most sophisticated. It needs lots of training and maintenance. It also uses jet fuel, uh, not the usual diesel fuel that other tanks use, so it wasn't seen as a great short-term option, which leads 
leads us to the political reason. Germany also has these excellent tanks that could get to Ukraine more quickly, but Germany had been reluctant to get out in front on, on sending tanks. So President Biden's announcement gave Germany some political cover, and, and Biden went out of his way to praise the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz. Do we know how long it's going to take to get these tanks over there? No, we don't. But a senior administration official said it would be months, not weeks. We're talking about 31 of the Abrams tanks. That's one Ukrainian tank battalion. Uh, the U.S. will have to train the Ukrainians, who've proven to be very fast learners on other weapons systems. But these are tanks that are, are not already in service. The U.S. is going to go through the procurement process, which can be a military synonym for do everything in slow motion. Now, one senior U.S. official tried to put the best face on this. He said the German tanks represent a near-term commitment. The U.S. tanks represent a long-term commitment. Rob Schmitz, jump in here, because Germany had also been reluctant. Did, did Chancellor Schultz explain today why they appear to have changed their minds? He didn't go into specifics, but he spoke today at the Bundestag, which is Germany's parliament, as part of his regular question-and-answer session. And he said that he decided to do this after what he called intensive consultations with Germany's allies and partners, including the United States. And he hinted that waiting to take this action until the U.S. was ready to also send tanks was an important necessity. Germany did not want to be alone in sending tanks to Ukraine. Many Germans are scared that doing that would have risked pulling Germany into a broader conflict. And here's some tape of Schultz addressing those fears. And Mary Louise, he's saying here that many German citizens are worried about sending Leopard 2 battle tanks to Ukraine given the power of these weapons, and that he would like to say to his citizens, trust me and trust the federal government. He said, because Germany acted in cooperation with its international partners, it has made sure this support is possible without risking that Germany would be pulled directly into this conflict. He also made it clear that Germany would not enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine and that it wouldn't send ground troops in any situation. So these tanks appear to be as far as Olaf Scholz is willing to go. I want to step back for a minute, and I'll throw this one to you, Greg. Why are tanks so critical for Ukraine right now? Well, Ukraine has been outgunned by Russia on almost every front in this war, and tanks are a powerful example of that. Russia has more tanks. The Ukrainians have had to rely on these aging Soviet-era tanks. Now, Ukraine is widely expected to carry out offensives pretty soon, and that's where tanks do become quite critical, when an army is trying to move forward on the ground. We should stress that a lot of military analysts say that tanks are just one component, though a key one, in what the U.S. calls combined arms, and they say the Ukrainians need many things, effective ground troops, light armored vehicles, artillery, air power, and they very much need tanks. One more question from the European perspective, because, Rob, I am wondering if this might open the floodgates for others. It's not just Germany among European countries that has tanks, not just Germany that has Leopard tanks. That's right. German weapons manufacturers export different models of Leopard tanks all throughout Europe. And so we've got dozens upon dozens of these in countries all over Europe. And today also Germany announced that their partner countries who have these tanks can also send those tanks to Ukraine if they want to. So 
Poland, obviously, has been asking to do this for a while, as have many other European countries. So in the following weeks, we'll likely see the first deliveries of what could be dozens of uh, some of the most state-of-the-art tanks being handed over to Ukraine's military. And Mary Lou, let me just pick up on what Rob was saying, that we've seen this very intense focus on tanks recently. In some ways, it's overshadowed some other key developments. Ukraine has received more pledges, more heavy weapons in the past month than at any time since the war began. The U.S. and others have promised patriots and other air defense systems to guard against Russian missiles. We've seen hundreds of armored vehicles that have been pledged, and now the tanks. Now, all of this sends a clear signal that the U.S. and NATO remain united, which many had questioned uh, that that would happen, and that they're stepping up support for Ukraine. In contrast, we've been hearing that Russia is turning to Iran and North Korea for weapons that are far less than cutting edge. Rob, just one more to you before I let you go. I keep thinking about this headline. German tanks set to roll across Europe towards a war. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's enough for any student of the wars of the past century to send just the tiniest chill down your spine. How is the conversation unfolding where you are in Berlin? Yeah, that's right. And I think it's worth remembering that Germany's history as a military aggressor in two world wars makes a decision like this to send war machines back into battle a really difficult and sensitive one for Germans. And I think Germany's more recent history of decades worth of Soviet rule and being in the middle of the Cold War also plays into this specific conflict. There's a residual pacifist sentiment from the Cold War here in Germany. And there's also a shared history between Germany and Russia from that era. And the complexities of that have slowly percolated for many Germans as this war has dragged on. We, you know, we've seen a shift in recent weeks of German public opinion towards Ukraine and against Russia. And I think it's a slowly evolving transition that we're witnessing here in Germany. Fascinating. NPR's Rob Schmitz and Greg Myrie reporting today from Berlin and Washington. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor Louise. Gun violence has an impact on mental health, and that's true far beyond the communities where shooting happens. This year, the U.S. has already had more than 30 mass shootings, including the two in California over the last week. Erica Felix teaches psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. How does this relentless toll of mass shootings affect people who might not be directly in the path of the gunfire or even anywhere near it? Yeah, so I think that you can liken these things to like a ripple in a pond where it reverberates out beyond the direct impact, you can see the concentric circles rippling out from that. If we use your analogy of the ripples, let's go closer to where that drop goes into the water. Some communities have much more gun violence than others, and the majority of gun violence is not mass shootings. Yeah. What impact does living in that community have on people, even if their loved ones, friends or relatives are not directly in the path of the gunfire? Well, they are under constant stress. For people who have to contend with it every day as they go to work or walk to school, they have elevated levels of hypervigilance, and that erodes our mental health and our physical health. We're talking about mental health consequences broadly. Can you speak specifically about what the actual impact is on people? Yeah, so whether we witness it on the news or live in the community or we were there on site, you can have a, a significant elevation in emotions of anxiety, worry, problems with sleeping, 
all of that is completely understandable. And for even if you're not in the community, even if you don't know the people affected. Yes. When we're watching the news, we feel the distress. We have this empathy component of ourselves as human beings. But for some people, especially who experienced the most losses, there is an increased potential for post-traumatic stress disorder or depression, complications in the understandable grief process if you lost a loved one in a violent way. Obviously, the ideal solution would be to end gun violence. But what specific steps can you suggest people take to reduce some of these negative psychological consequences? Yes. In the immediate aftermath, one of the important things is to get social support. We had a mass murder tragedy affect our community. In Santa Barbara. In Santa Barbara in 2014. So what people found most helpful was the activities where they came together as a community. It could even just be a potluck and just be around other people who are experiencing similar things. Um, That's so interesting to me that a vigil, for example, is not just a show of solidarity or a statement of community. It's actually healing. It is. And actually, when I surveyed our students at UCSB following the mass murder tragedy, that was one of the things they found most helpful, and it was the most widely attended. All of that stuff students rated as really helpful in their coping in the immediate aftermath. Hmm. As members of the media report on these shootings week after week, are there ways you wish news organizations would approach these stories differently that might reduce the harm? I appreciate the shift that I've seen in news media where there's focus on the community and survivors and there's limited coverage on the perpetrator. I think that's been a great shift. I've also really appreciated when the media has gone back to communities that experienced this years ago and just talked about how they're coping in the long-term aftermath, I think is helpful as more and more people contend with this. That's Erica Felix, professor of clinical psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Wall Street stocks closed pretty close to where they opened today. The Dow gained a small fraction. It was up 10 points to close at 33,744. S&P dipped a tiny fraction to close at 4016. The Nasdaq lost nearly two-tenths of a percent to close at 11,313. The former Vanderbilt estate in Stockbridge and Lenox has been sold for $8 million. The Boston Business Journal reports the new owner is a real estate developer who is likely to turn the 89-acre property into a luxury resort. The sale closed last month. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Elizabeth Bain of Commonwealth Standard Realty, providing guidance and advice to buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. More at elizabethbainhomes.com. Boston Bruins and Celtics both have the night off tonight. Tonight at 7.30, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will deliver her first State of the City address, talking about how we get around, how and where we live, and live safely. You can hear her remarks live at 7.30 on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. The forecast is coming up.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, offering in-person and online events, including herbal classes, meditations, and more. Calendar at cambridgenaturals.com events. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org cars, and thanks. Snow's here. Should stick around for a little while, next several hours anyway, leaving an inch or so on the ground in Boston, maybe two inches north and west of the city, possibly three outside Route 495. And then it should be followed by a heavy rain overnight tonight with strangely high temperatures up around 50 degrees by dawn tomorrow. That should melt away most of the snow, 50 during the day tomorrow as well. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. What do these musicians have in common? Bob Dylan, Calvin Harris, Stevie Nicks. They're just three of the growing crowd of artists who've sold the rights to their own music. Justin Bieber is the latest to join the ranks. He's selling his entire catalog for more than $200 million. Kristen Robinson is a music publishing reporter from Billboard. Welcome. Thanks for having me. To start with Bieber's sale specifically, what can you tell us about the company that bought his catalog for $200 million? Yes. So Hypnosis Songs Capital is who bought Justin Bieber's catalog. This is one of the major players in the music catalog acquisition market, which has been really hot in the last few years. A ton of artists, many of which you mentioned in your intro, are deciding to sell their catalogs so that they can get an upfront payment. And Hypnosis is one of those companies that is buying up a lot of them. Um, You know, Shakira, Leonard Cohen, all these artists that don't seem to have too much in common, but they do have valuable catalogs. I I get that purchasing a popular artist's catalog allows companies to get royalties, cut brand deals. But ultimately, is it worth hundreds of millions of dollars? When you look at the sums that are being shelled out, they're just huge. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of money. um, And artists' catalog deals are... Not an exact science. Uh, There are people who work in catalog valuations who try to determine exactly how much each catalog should be bought and sold for. Um, But it's it's a very difficult number to come to. And these numbers have been climbing a lot higher in recent years. There definitely are some critics who might say the catalog market has gotten way too hot and there are too many people that are trying to buy, which has pushed these prices to astronomical levels that they've never reached before. These are definitely risks that these companies are taking, but I think that, you know, someone like Hypnosis is willing to take that bet, even on a younger artist like Justin Bieber. Um, so it's it's going to be very telling in the next few decades whether or not these companies will ever be able to make the money back that they spent on these catalogs. As you said, the artists who are selling their catalogs are so different from one another, and they have dramatically increased in the last few years. Why do so many musicians suddenly think this is a good idea? Well, for musicians, there's quite a few reasons. I think that COVID-19 should not be understated. A lot of these artists were pulled off the road, or they had tours planned that were really going to be the things that help them pay their mortgages and, you know, all that stuff over the last few years that were all canceled. A lot lot of revenue streams offered to artists were eliminated. David Crosby, who, you know, passed away sadly last week, 
even tweeted about this and said that he didn't really want to sell his catalog, but he felt that he needed to because a lot of his opportunities to make money had been taken away from him. That being said, a lot of artists that are especially reaching their older years sometimes would just rather sell and get that money in an upfront payment than to maybe, you know, if they, if they don't feel like they're going to live for more than a, a couple more decades, like leaving this catalog to your family members is a really challenging thing to look after. It's way easier to divvy up millions and millions of dollars than it is to divvy up publishing rights. Yes, exactly. It, it's quite a burden on your family, especially if they don't have much knowledge of the music business mm. to have them try to manage a giant estate like that. So it is a lot simpler to just be like, let's let's get this money now while you know, interest rates are low in the last few years. Like, let, let's capitalize on the fact that there's high demand in the market, try to cash out right now, and then, you know, live off that for the rest of your life and also pass that down to your offspring. That's Kristen Robinson, a music publishing reporter for Billboard. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Former President Donald Trump can return to Facebook. The social media company says in the coming weeks it will lift a ban it put in place more than two years ago after Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. But will Trump come back, especially now that the social media landscape looks very different? NPR Shannon Bond is covering this story. Hi, Shannon. Hi there. Remind us how Facebook made its decision in 2021 to suspend Trump's account. Yeah, I mean, it happened just a day after the the Capitol riot. They indefinitely suspended Trump uh, because at the time, CEO Mark Zuckerberg said there was just too much risk of violence. Trump had posted praising the rioters and not just Facebook, but also Twitter and YouTube saw this as incitement and he was kicked off all of these major platforms. And those decisions were just incredibly controversial. And in fact, for Facebook, it was so controversial the company asked its then newly formed oversight board to weigh in. It's a that's a group of experts in law and human rights uh, that the company um, asked for feedback from on its tough content decisions. The board said that Facebook was justified in suspending Trump, but it took issue with this idea of an indefinite ban. It said they needed to be more specific. So Facebook came back a little bit later and said, "Okay, it's a two-year ban. We'll take a look and then decide if it's safe to let him back." And now those two years are up. So two years later, what's changed? How's the company justifying its decision to let him back on? Well, Meta says the risk to public safety has sufficiently receded. Um, It didn't give a lot more explanation of how it reached that conclusion, but it does say it's going to put new guardrails in place. So if Trump breaks the rules again, you know, he could be suspended again for up to another two years. It says it could also restrict his posts, even if they don't outright break the rules. So if he starts posting QAnon conspiracy theories, if he questions an upcoming election, Facebook could make it harder to see those posts unless you go directly to Trump's page. Trump has started his own social media site, Truth Social. Uh, Does it look like he'll actually return to Facebook? Yeah, I mean, this is a good question. You know, just now he took he's taking a victory lap on Truth Social. You know, he says, you know, a, a sitting president should never be banned. He claims that banning him is why Facebook has lost a ton of market value. But look, the Trump campaign had petitioned Facebook to let him back on. But we don't know if he's going to to use it again. You know, he was allowed back onto Twitter in November, but he has not been posting there. So far, he's only been using Truth Social. He actually has an agreement to post there first. But of course, all right, his reach there is much lower, right, than it would be on Twitter or Facebook. So, you know, we'll have to see if it's tempting to come back. And also, then there's this question of if he does 
start posting again, how long will he last? You know, he has been posting lots of, of false claims about the 2020 election on Truth Social. He's been amplifying QAnon conspiracies, you know, and those are the type of posts that could trigger these guardrails Facebook is talking about. Social media has changed so much in the last couple of years. If he does get back on these platforms, is he going to have the same reach he once had? I mean, that's a real good question. You know, Facebook does look weaker at this point than it did when it banned him. It has lost users and revenue for the first time. Twitter is in chaos under Elon Musk. You know, all of these smaller upstart sites, not just True Social, but Parler, Getter, Gab, you know, they have been fueled by, you know, appeals to conservatives who feel they are censored by big tech. But it's not quite clear if there's, it's going to be easy for Trump to stay away. You know, Facebook played a really important fundraising role for him that's going to be important as he runs for president again in 2024. But I think this all, Ari, is just a reminder of how much power these big tech companies have to decide who gets a voice online. NPR's Shannon Bond. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered. Marketplace is next on WBUR, and this reminder will bring you Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's first State of the City address live from the MGM Music Hall in Boston. It starts at 7.30. Our coverage begins a bit before that. Coming to City Space January 27th, WBUR midday anchor Jack Lepiar as AK Jack the Whipper performs his circus show with special guest Cess Carney. In-person tickets for the event are sold out, but virtual tickets are still available at WBUR.org slash events. Snow is in the area now, turning to just plain rain sometime after 10 o'clock tonight. Temperature should be on the march, making it to nearly 50 in the middle of the night. Strong winds as well. Tomorrow morning, rain ending, cloudy skies. Temperatures about 50 during the day. WBUR supporters include Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save, energy-saving solutions for your business no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com.